This is the Intergalactic Peace Coalition Precious. It's a podcast it is. By the fans, for the fans, they say. Precious has never heard of fans before. Gollum! Gollum! It's hosted by filthy hobbitses named Ben and Zack. But what about me? What about the Precious? Well, you'll just have to come join us on IPC. Gave a promise. You brought upon them only ruin and death. You've won the mountain, is that not enough? Now, we defend it. I came to reclaim something of mine. This was the last move in a master plan. A plan long in the making. These bats are bred for one purpose. For war. Sauron to me. Bilbo is right. You cannot see what you have become. Everything I did, I did for them. You started this. You will forgive me if I finish it. When faced with death, what can anyone do? to answer. How shall this day end? This podcast is sponsored in part by Benjamin Hart. That's me! And yours truly, Zach Arnold. And by participation from listeners like you. So let's tune in to another episode of IPC. 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 The Intergalactic Peace Coalition Podcast. All the galaxies. All for you. Hey, hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Intergalactic Peace Coalition podcast. My name is Zach, and I'm so excited that you've chosen to spend the next little while with us as we dive into the epic conclusion of a really awesome trilogy, along with some other really awesome items that we've got in store for you tonight. It's going to be a lot of fun. 
but uh, I don't want to have that fun alone. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce my friend, my co-host, my good buddy. He's with me every step of the way, and I wouldn't want to do it without him. It's Mr. Ben Hart. How are you tonight, man? Oh, I'm doing fantastic, and glad to be talking about more The Hobbit. Yeah. And, well, the last of The Hobbit, and I'm kind of sad about that. I know. I've enjoyed this quite a bit. I've enjoyed watching these films. I've enjoyed discussing them and to see it coming to an end, especially being that there really isn't any more Lord of the Rings movies to cover after this is it. I know. Um, I guess we have that, that Lord of the Rings TV show that's coming out. Yeah, yeah. So that'll be fun to break down when it comes out. But for right now, we're done with Middle Earth, which is unfortunate but we're not done with this episode we just got started yeah yep we've still got plenty to talk about but the one thing that i want to emphasize and and i want to get your thoughts on this because we talked about the lord of the rings movies with you know frodo and sam and the fellowship and all of that back Mm -hmm. in february i believe now that you've seen those and you've seen these what is your impression on the tonality between the two trilogies, because I feel like there's just a very different tone from each set of movies. Did you get that vibe or that impression at all from these films? There's a bit of a different tone. I feel like they did a pretty good job of matching the tones and matching kind of like making this feel like, okay, this is the same universe and it helps that you have, you know, the same characters and whatever. Um, I think overall, I mean, I don't notice too much. Of course, a lot of people have seen these movies a lot more than I have. I've only seen all of them once. And so, like, you know, picking up the subtleties like that is not going to be, you know, that easy for me. But just once through for each of these films, like, yeah, I think they've done a pretty good job. And also, you can definitely tell, like, The Hobbit is The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings yeah. is Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I mean, I think the the different style of presenting the ensemble cast is another thing that I really noticed when going back through this trilogy. You Mm -hmm. get a lot more specific showtime or specific airtime for the different members of the ensemble cast from Lord of the Rings. Whereas there are several instances where it feels like different members of this dwarven gang are just kind of along for the ride and don't, and don't always have like a, a particular moment. Pippin has a particular moment. Mary has a particular moment in the Two Towers, say. Uh, you've got Aragorn, Legolas, and, and Gimli all working together. You've got Frodo and Sam working together. You've got Gandalf and his exploits throughout the course of the trilogy. Everybody has a particular moment where they have a chance to shine. I can't necessarily say that I saw moments of shining glory for every single one of the ensemble cast in this trilogy. They played their part, no doubt, but it's just a a different way of presenting ensemble casts is one of the things that definitely stood out to me, among other things. And we're going to get to all of that in just a few minutes, but first we've got to bring in a couple of different uh, tidbits of news and information for you. Because, um, dude, there's been some really interesting stuff that's happened this week. One of them, Uh probably one of the most trippy images I have seen in a freaking long time. I, I really don't know what to make of this CWDC crossover event that's coming up in December. 
but I do know that I'm really, really curious to see how Stephen Amell looks in red, and I'm really curious to see how good Grant Gustin is with a bow. I'll just lay that out there right here and now. Yeah, because, okay, so we got this just today, as we're, as we're recording this episode, that we got a little teaser image. Now, this thing is so trippy, it looks like It really art. does. It looks like something someone just It looks like it was it. photoshopped. It really does. Yeah, yeah. But it's, okay, describing this image, for those of you who don't, and I'll include a link to this in the description of the episode if you want to check it out for yourself. But basically, Stephen Amal, who plays the Green Arrow, a.k.a. Oliver Queen on CW, CW Arrow Show, um, he posted this image, and it's Grant Gustin, a.k.a. Barry Allen from the Flash TV show, wearing the Green Arrow costume, complete with the bow and arrow and all, and you have Stephen Amell as Oliver Queen in the red Flash costume. And, of course, the, 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 the title of the show reads, Destiny Will Be Rewritten. The title of the show is Elseworlds, and it's the special three-night DC crossover event. So this is the annual crossover they do with all of DC shows, or at least three of them this, this year. But, and then, of course, Stephen follows it up with, My name is Barry Allen, and I'm the fastest man alive, of course, riffing on the actual show, which, you know, from The Flash. So, apparently, Barry Dunn effed up the timeline again. Damn it, Barry. Are they ever going to not F up the timeline? Like, I don't think that's even a possibility. Yeah, it is. I, I guess, I mean, that's what makes it interesting. Because they already did this. Like, for a while, you had, like, the soft flashpoint with Barry season three, season two, I can't remember, where he went back and saved his mother and, of course, switched things up and then changed it back, but then everything wasn't back to the way it was. This seems like, I don't know, they're going to alternate universes. We've already kind of done that, but this seems like a really trippy, like, full force, you know, Barry Allen in some other world is the Green Arrow in another world. Or maybe maybe Barry Allen is Oliver Queen? I don't know how this is going to work, but that's it's it's pretty cool. It's so... I mean, there's, there's obviously, like, different possibilities, and I'm curious to see how those different possibilities play out. Uh, it just never ceases to amaze me that these series have gone on for as long as they have, and they still find ways to throw in new wrinkles. You know? Like, like I imagine somebody at one point was just kind of talking about it off the cuff and was like, haha, wouldn't it be funny if Steven was the Flash and Grant was the Arrow? And then they're like, dude. And then they're like, dude. <laughs> and next thing you know, the writer's room is like <laughs> scribbling out as much as they can, just trying to get it all in order. But, I mean... I'm curious, like, like just the promo image itself is enough to make me curious because I'm like, what are they going to do with this? How, how is this going to go down? Um, there's a really funny comment in the thread by Demar Marrero. He says, my name is Barry Queen and I'm the fastest man alive. After five years in hell, I have come home with only one goal to save my city. To the outside world, I'm an ordinary forensic scientist. But secretly, with the help of others who have joined my crusade, I fight crime and find other metahumans like me, and I'll hunt down the one who killed my father. To the rest of Star City, I'm someone else. I am something else. I am the Green Flash. <laughs> 
<laughs> green oh my and then gosh. somebody else john tamburi says funny. oh jesus what did barry do now can we put a bell on him or something <laughs> and i love i love that Stephen ml just posted this with not much context and then he he replied to the tweet on twitter and said, this is real, by the way. I'm in the flash shoot while I type this right now. So, like, I mean, he could have been taken as, oh, this is just cool fan art. But no, this well, is for has real. Has anybody else from the Arrowverse posted anything similar? Are we going to get to see other characters in other costumes the closer we get to the crossover? The, okay, the only other thing that we've gotten, and this was actually posted before that, but Stephen Amell also posted a picture of Tyler Hoechlin. I think that's how it's Maybe Hoechlin? Um... He's Hetchlin, that's probably better, um, who plays Superman in Supergirl, which is technically an alternate universe, but also is in the same universe, um, in an all-black Superman costume. Interesting. So, so what could that mean? Are we talking, you know, you know, alternate universe, evil Superman maybe, or something like that? He, I don't really know anything about Superman in a black suit, to be completely honest. But there was an article no. from IGN that is trying to dive deeper into this, so I'm going to take a quick look at that. Yeah, I'm just Googling black suit Superman right, to see what this actually right. means. This isn't the first time the Man of Steel has worn a black costume, but it's usually a pretty big deal when he does. We have a few theories as to what this costume change could mean for the crossover. Okay, well, come on, give it, give it to me. Uh, the black costume has appeared several times throughout his history. It's most closely associated with a comic book storyline called Reign of Superman. Uh, follow up, the death of Superman is the story that brought the Man of Steel back to life following his apparently fatal clash with Doomsday. The black suit is known as the Recovery Suit, so named because it helps Clark regain his full strength faster. Yeah, I remember people talking about that Superman could come back with a black suit. And I get it. In, uh, I get Justice why, too. Because he gets his power from the sun. So if he's wearing a black suit, mm-hmm. he's absorbing more sunlight and healing faster. Oh, Because that's, that, that's the whole point of, of him living here is because of Earth's star that it revolves around, it's got more power, therefore it enhances his power. So if he's wearing a black suit, he's taking in more sunlight and it's helping him regain his powers. Okay, I get Very it. Very interesting. Uh, there's also, okay, this may be more plausible because there's something else titled An Elseworlds Superman. The title the title that we've got on Ooh. this crossover between Amel and Gustin is called Elseworlds. So given that the new crossover is titled Elseworlds and features the debut of the all-seeing monitor, seems a safe assumption that our heroes will be taking a tour of the multiverse. That raises an interesting question. Do we already know for sure that Superman and Lois Lane appearing in the crossover are from Supergirl's Earth-38? What if the reason Hetchlin is wearing a different costume is because he's playing a different version of Superman? It would hardly be the first time we've met an alternate universe versions of familiar Arrowverse characters. Interesting, so there's a lot of interesting. possibilities here. Uh, a lot of the different versions that they're promoting here on IGN show a comic Superman with a full beard. I'd be curious to see if Hetchlin grows out some facial hair for this role. That would be really interesting. He might be the, the first on-screen Superman to wear a beard. No, 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 actually... Didn't, yeah, I was about to say, Cavill didn't did Cavill it. do it too? But, yeah, Cavill did it before, technically before he was Superman. But, 
yeah, that, that would be, be that, that would be really really interesting. Cool. Well, it would also help distinguish him a little bit too, like be able to set his characters apart even further. Because you're like, oh, okay, the Superman from Earth-38 does not have facial hair. This is not Superman from Earth-38. That's kind of what they did with the mirror universes in Star Trek. Like, Mr. Spock had a full-on goatee from the mirror universe. And you're like, okay, that's definitely not the Leonard Nimoy that I know. That's how they always do it. That's how they always do it. But I tell you what, Tyler Hoechlin, like, that dude as Superman Mm. is great. I love him. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Probably one of the brighter spots of the entire Supergirl TV series, if I'm being totally honest. Yeah, like the best episode I've seen in that series is, has him in it. So, yep. um, Just, so just going to leave that, that there out. and uh, let people stew on that opinion for a little bit. That uh... Well, sp- as we're speaking about different suits and specifically black suits, let's go over to the Marvel yes. Universe really quick. And talk about something that just came out. Apparently, according to Tom Holland himself, of course he's the 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 unofficial leaker over Mark at Marvel Ruffalo. alongside. Uh, you can't you can't send those two to a convention or a panel together. They're going to collaborate somehow and spoil everything from the Marvel universe. And apparently, uh, Mark Ruffalo was publicly fired the other day by the Russo brothers. So take that as publicly, you will. but was it in jest? Uh, we'll never know. We'll, we'll know. We'll know. We'll know. In the I next suppose. Avengers movie, I guess. Uh, but apparently, Tom Holland says that uh, Spider-Man: Far From Home has officially wrapped production. But uh, before that, we actually got some interesting little uh, little set photos and some videos. And if you actually search Twitter, or if you want to, just go to Twitter and search Spider-Man: Far From Home. You will get a bunch of different videos and pictures from, I believe it's New York, where they were filming, and they were just filming on a street corner, and doing, and of course, it's Tom Holland in the suit, and you've got Zendaya, who plays MJ, and Michelle MJ, that's what they're calling her now, um, and basically they're just doing all this in broad daylight, in, around, surrounded by thousands of people, and on the street corner, so, you know, and we've got a new suit for Spider-Man himself. So it's kind of like the homecoming suit, but it's instead of red and blue, it's red and black. Yeah. And you can actually see these photos pretty much everywhere, but it looks looks pretty cool. Okay, I know you're not going to get this reference, but for all you college football fans, Spider-Man has kind of become the Oregon Ducks of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Okay, I'm because that. there's 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 a college football team that is sponsored by Nike, and I swear to God, they wear a different football jersey every week of the season. They have so many really? different jerseys and so many different color combinations that they try and work with that it's like no two combinations are ever exactly the same. Why? That's so stupid. I. Because Nike freaking sponsors them, man. Nike is based in Oregon, and so they just, like, sponsor the hell out of the Oregon Ducks. And their football team has, like, countless numbers of uniforms and different kinds of combinations. They have different helmets, different pants, different jerseys, different colors that are on the jerseys, different socks, different cleats. Literally nothing is ever the same about the Oregon Ducks uniforms. Wow. <laughs> and it's just it's crazy like if you just type in Oregon Ducks uniforms and go to Google Images you will see like 
so many different combinations. They've got like a forest green with yellow numbering. They've got yellow on yellow pants. They've got black on black. They've got like an all gray with like a yellow piping outline. They've got a white jersey with green numbers and green pants. They wear a white helmet with throwback green. Like it's never the same thing. Wow. That's funny. And that's, honestly, I feel like that's kind of what Spider-Man's turning into, because he keeps getting pimped out by Tony Stark. He's got a different suit almost every movie we see him in. We don't know if it's Tony Stark or not, because at this point, Tony Stark could be dead. I mean, it's it's quite possible. This is is post-Infinity War. (laughs) Well, but it's Stark Industries. Like, where else is he going to get the spider suit? Right, right. Also, there's, there's pictures, and this is a bit of a spoiler, so, you know... Um, turn away if you don't want to know this, but this, this guy, this. turn your, turn your, turn your head away from the speakers. Take your headphones out for the next 10 seconds and pop them back uh, in. This isn't big spoil. This kind of stuff is out there and I'm sure it'll be in the trailers, but apparently, uh, Nick Fury is going to be in this movie and of course, spoiler alert, he's still alive. He got dusted though. And apparently, um, he's going to give Spider-Man an all black stealth suit. So there you go, another suit for Spider-Man. Another set of color combinations that we don't really need, but okay. Ugh. Sorry, I am much more interested in the content of the film than what he's wearing. And I know that's probably a, a, a heretical thing to say about Spider-Man, because I know that it's like, oh, the different versions of his suits are supposed to like mimic the progression of his maturity and character blah 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 no i don't care just give me a good movie please especially with the fact that it just finished filming after you know they're still finishing up uh avengers 4 like like chris evans finished his stuff maybe like a week or two ago so if they're just finishing up that part of the filming for uh you know avengers 4 they were basically doing these in sequence, like like almost together. Yeah. You know, Holland finished whatever he was doing on Avengers 4 and went straight to England from Atlanta and started working on Far From Home. So, like, they knew what they were doing. They, know what, they knew what they were getting themselves into, and they're like, okay, bye, Tom, go do your thing. And I, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I guess we'll see. Yeah, and I, I keep hearing the rumor that Spider-Man Far From Home begins quote, minutes after Avengers 4, which is also rumored to be titled Annihilation. Annihilation. Interesting. Avengers Annihilation. Oh, man. So much speculation to be had. So little time. So much. But it's good to touch on the DC Universe and the Marvel Universe just a little bit here and there. Uh, And it's also nice to step away from politics for a bit because living in texas we've had the big ted cruz versus beto o'rourke debate and i'm just sick of it man midterms are coming up people get out the vote but we're not going to tell you who to vote for on this podcast we're gonna we're gonna go away from that yeah that's that's as political as i'm gonna get is that i am sick of it you know if, if if you are as sick of it as i am then yes go out there and vote and make your voice heard but I'm just tired of it, man. I, I'm, I'm so tired of everybody making jabs at everybody else. And, and I'm tired of, of the hate when there should be peace. You know, I'm, I'm a peacekeeper to the last. And the, the way people are behaving on social media is just not very peaceworthy. And it makes it me sad. It is not welcome on this show. 
Nope, it's not. No negativity here. It's 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 all positivity and all the great things, all the good Except things. Except when we talk about a movie, things. Then, then it's okay. Yeah, but most of the time we've taken to trashing stuff over on R.I.P. That is true. So maybe maybe that'll give us a, a better outlet to talk about the things that we enjoy here on this show. Indeed. Well, we do have something we want to talk about tonight. We actually do. We've got something that's not just news that we want to talk about because, uh, you know, surprise, I, I, I can assume that by the way you heard from the intro, it's going to be Lord of the Rings themed. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. you heard... Our friend Andy Damon's fantastic impression of Gollum for that intro, which is honestly, mm, he does an amazing job. He is man. he's like, perfect. He he gives he gives the other Andy a run for his money. I I I'm not trying to knock Andy Circus, but I'm saying if he's busy, hire Andy Damon for this Amazon series, dude. Just putting that yeah, out there. He could he could just put voice that match there. him like crazy, but. He, he does he does a great job and I uh, just wanted to give him a little bit of props on the show Indeed. before we dive into the battle of the five armies and we've got a lot of different elements to talk about we're going to try and go through it in progression as best we can um but before we get into anything about movie or you know relation to the trilogy or relation to the books anything like that i just want to get your initial impressions ben cuz you told me before we went on the show that you stayed up until almost 3 in the morning watching this film <laughs> so your your view has to be just a little bit tainted by how late you stayed up but at the same time like I think that's also a testament to how much you've been enjoying this trilogy is that you're willing to stay up to all hours of the night watching it. What did you make of this final installment? If I'm being honest, I probably would have been up that late anyway, but, you know, it is how it works out. But, uh, yeah, I enjoyed this one. I really did. I don't know if I enjoyed it as much as The Desolation of Smaug, but I enjoyed it quite a bit, and I enjoyed the conclusion, and yes... I, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was funny in parts. Other times it made me cry. I'm not, I'm just being honest here. And I really, it was a great conclusion to this, to this trilogy. And I know it has problems. I know I, I, I haven't heard all of them. I've heard people trash these movies for literally years now. And I still don't know exactly like what people's problems are with these movies, but overall I've enjoyed them and I enjoyed this one and I'm looking forward to just kind of trying to, you know, get all our thoughts out there tonight about it because this is this is going to be our only chance. We'll hopefully we'll we'll come back to this at some point. But uh yeah, I think Battle of Five Armies lived up to the name. There was a lot of fighting, there was a lot of battles, there was a lot of action. <laughs> um That's it was true. crazy, but uh at the same time I think it did it pretty darn well. As far as action sequences Chron- like as far, like the actual chronological time like if you put a timer like your phone timer on it i believe this battle of the five armies is the longest fight sequence in all of the middle earth movies yeah yeah it, it was it, a huge undertaking it goes on for a while there's a lot of fighting going on in a lot of different places a lot of different styles um but at the same time, it all feels rather cohesive and it all kind of makes sense. I will say, the more you watch it, the more it makes sense. Because just watching it one time through, you're just kind of catching some of the different things. You're waiting and watching for some of your favorite characters to pop up, that kind of thing. You're watching it from like a cinematic perspective. 
once you get into it, like time two, three, or four, like I was doing this time around, I was starting to grasp some of the nuances of the storytelling. And then going back and reading that last section of the book also helped a little bit. It kind of helped me foster the imagination and helped me realize what source material they were pulling from in order to make this movie. And in doing so, it actually helped me build a deeper appreciation for this film. There was a time when I considered it the weakest of the three. And mm. now I'm not so sure. Um, I I feel like I feel like there were some really good cinematic things from the Desolation of Smaug, as we talked about last week. But I think this movie did a pretty good job, not the best job, but did a pretty good job of blending storytelling with creative liberties and movie magic. Like, it, it hit a lot of those different points for me. And so um, I'm excited. I'm excited to talk about it because... You know, last week we, we mentioned that the Desolation of Smaug finished with the feared dragon taking off from the mountain and heading for Lake Town. Uh-huh. And he says, I am fire. I am death. And then Bilbo is just kind of looking over the, the mountain precipice, seeing the destruction that's about to be wrought upon the town he just came from. And he says, what have I done? And then... You just cut and you're done. And credits. Like, holy smokes. Literally, holy smokes. <laughs> that is one heck of a way to finish a movie. But then the, the cool part is you had to wait a whole year. You had to wait a whole week. <laughs> <laughs> but most of us that were already invested in this series had to wait a whole year uh -huh. in order to find out what happened and how it happened. And in my opinion, this is probably one of the better opening sequences of of any of the movies, of, of any of the Middle Earth movies, mm -hmm. and is a, a really a really good action sequence overall. Like, I think this sequence, and and we've we've done comparisons to Game of Thrones and The Hobbit uh, already from last week's episode, but I definitely see where the creators of Game of Thrones were inspired by the stuff that happened at the beginning of the Battle of the Five Armies. I really, truly do. It They jump right into it. Like, they don't make you wait. Like, there is no, like, you know, after that cliffhanger, after that year-long wait, or however many years you waited to see this movie, like, they jump right into it. And I was, I was kind of shocked by the brutality of what goes down. Like, they don't shy away from showing you people that are just literally getting burned alive by this. And he, I mean, Smaug is, takes no prisoners. He goes in and he destroys the place. And it's, I mean, pretty graphic at times. And it's pretty intense. And it's also very satisfying to see Smaug finally get taken down. And finally, it happens pretty quickly. But also, you know, still it is, it feels like it's a hard-won battle. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because you're you're sitting there going, what what could happen next? Yeah, you know yeah, exactly. Like thing things are just so horribly bad that you're just like, oh goodness, what could possibly happen next? And then just when Bard is kind of showing off his skills a little bit and finding a way out of prison, like really creatively, by the way, but 
he he finds his way out of the jail and he 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 grabs a bow and a, and a and a satchel of arrows and throws it over his shoulder and he's ready to do his thing and he's hurling them at the beast and they're just bouncing off his hide bouncing off his hide you're like oh crap and then he's got this moment of hope where his son brings him the last black arrow of the town and you're like oh there's still a chance and then his bow snaps into and smile kind of turns to him and he looks at him and he's like what are you going to do now bow man <laughs> and i was like ah like i sort of geeked out at that one a little bit because i remember last week i said you know his name was bard the bowman that's where he gets it from is that bow that ends up slaying the dragon just beautifully beautifully done on all accounts yeah it's you know it's not enough that smaug is just this unstoppable force he's also like totally trolling him the entire time <laughs> like oh, just yeah. goading him oh yeah like he's got, what you like, gonna do what you gonna do weird he's got this sick sense of humor man like i've that's one of the that's one of the beautiful distinctions between uh from from middle earth and game of thrones is the dragons of game of thrones don't talk like if they were able to talk that would scare the crap out of me because those dragons are scary enough Mm -hmm. when you've got a fire breathing beast that is speaking the common tongue to you and isn't just destroying your home and your neighborhood and your town but he's also taunting you while he's doing it that just adds this extra level of intensity to the whole situation yeah it is crazy and just you know the intent, the intensity that it adds that you're, you know, he's not just, you know, this just terrifying force. He's like, yeah, I'm totally aware of what's going on, and it's it's not like, like normally speaking, like you have an animal that's just doing stuff just instinctively. Like he is yeah. a he's a character that is yeah. doing this because he wants to, because he's he's a psychopath. Just that just wants to kill people because he wants to. Yeah. Yeah. He is oh, man. But man, but he just... when he when he dies, he dies. Dude. I love how he lands he, on the, and, the king. And, and yes, he took out the master with him, which I thought was so cool. Um it was it was a great ending to Stephen Fry's character and a great ending to Benedict Cumberbatch's character. Like I, I know I said this last week, but again, some fantastic casting all around on on these last two films of the trilogy. They just did a stellar, stellar job of of adding people to the mix that were just right for the part. None more so, in my opinion, than Billy Connolly as Dane Ironfoot. But we're gonna get to that in a little bit. <laughs> we we will we will get to that soon enough. But it was it was a great scene to kind of open things because usually movies like to have some sort of opening fight sequence that have like an an opportunity to show off the strength of your protagonists. The best example that I can come up with would be like Captain America Civil War, where they're all kind of fighting this terrorist that really doesn't have anything to do with the Civil War concept, but you're showing off all their different abilities, if you will. Like, kind of getting you previewed or or ready for the stuff that's to come later on in the movie. Usually, those sequences kind of stand on their own. 
Um, mm-hmm. Age of Ultron's another good example. You know, when they're meeting the twins for the first time. You know, they... It, it's kind of important, but doesn't get more important until later. Right. This sequence is one of the most important of the whole story. If you don't slay the dragon, if you don't succeed in this moment, there is no rest of the story to be told. He just returns to the mountain, kicks ass, and keeps the gold. So there's like a huge make-or-break moment at the very beginning of this movie that almost sets the tone for the whole rest of the film. It's like, this is how important this is. This is how severe this situation is. This is how much the mountain means to Smaug, to the dwarves, to everybody involved, that he's willing to destroy an entire town over it. Just because he was essentially throwing a temper tantrum. Yeah, yeah, basically. He's just mad at the dwarves, and he's like, I'm going to go kill a bunch of people because I can, and because you can't stop me. It's like, I can't find you, but there are some easy targets out at Lake Town. In fact, in the book, there's one point where he leaves the people in the escape boats alone and just continues to terrorize the town because he feels the slow-moving boats would be easy target practice for him to pick off once he's done with the town. <laughs> oh, wow. I was like, I was wondering about that. I'm like, they're getting out in boats. They're just going to be sitting ducks, like literally. Exactly. Like, they, exactly. there's nowhere to go. No, there really isn't. And and that's that's part of what made Lake Town such, a, such an easy target, I suppose, is this idea that they're just a town out there on the water. And, uh, yeah, the water's not going to save them from the fire that rains from above. Yeah. It was... It was beautiful that the fight happened at night as well because it provided like a really stark contrast. You you see a dark, mellow, somber town essentially and it gets lit up by the fire of the dragon and all of a sudden things are brighter but they're certainly not happier. And I, f- I felt like that, um, that, that didactic split was really, really well done because usually when things are lighter, they're they're happier in tone, they're brighter in nature, um, and, and people are kind of, you know, getting nicer and happier. But totally not the case here because this fire means we've got a flying lizard-like pyromaniac in our midst. <laughs> not, oh, things are getting better. It's like, no, things are getting worse. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, and it, and it's also like this great. I love the scene where he's finally taken down, and it all comes down to they only have one black arrow, one, just one, one. and one shot in this tiny area on his chest. Like, it comes down to that, and he's using his son as a as a guide to send the arrow. Like, it's just insane, but he hits his mark. Yep. Yep. That's not in the book, but it's great for storytelling purposes. How does he go down in the book? Uh, it, it, essentially, he just has one arrow remaining. They don't even talk about it as if it were a spear. They just treat it as if it was the last arrow from his quiver, essentially. Oh. And and he, he, he puts some sort of like special blessing on it. Like He really wants this one to fly true, so he, like, he like speaks a, a special blessing over it. And and then just lets it fly. Let me let me see if I can find the wording for it. I'm in the right chapter. I just got to find the right quote. He's talking to the master there. 
I'm the last man to undervalue Bard the Bowman. Do, 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 do. Oh, this is after he kills him. Okay. Uh, I need to find... I should have bookmarked this. I really should have. I mm. know uh, I'll find it in just a second. Fluttering to his shoulder. Oh, yeah. He didn't have his son. He had a thrush, uh, a bird of some sort, that actually tells him where the soft spot is. And uh, that's I, I much prefer him using his son as a stabilizer rather than a bird whispering in his ear telling him how to aim. I think that's just... Ugh. Here we go. Arrow, said the bowman. Black arrow. I have saved you to the last. You have never failed me, and always I have recovered you. I had you from my father and he from of old. If ever you came from the forges of the true king under the mountain, go now and speed well. So he basically he basically prays a blessing over the arrow, and apparently it's something that's from his family, from his genealogy, which is kind of implied in Desolation of Smaug. That big black arrow is apparently, you know, passed down through generations. So there's a little bit of a connection in there, but it almost sounds like it's just a common arrow that found its mark. Wow. So, so it was just a regular arrow. I mean, apparently, but I also kind of like the idea of taking creative liberties like that because, I mean, an arrow can be an arrow, but who's to say it's not a ginormous arrow, and, you know? I, and I, I like a, a tiny, like, wooden arrow being able to take down a dragon Right, doesn't sound as believable as, say, okay, this is a big giant metal arrow like this is like a this is more like a lance or something you know it's like the it's like the type of arrows you see flying out of a scorpion or something yeah yeah so i yeah. i just knowing what little i know about the book i prefer the movie version <laughs> well i mean that's one creative liberty that i'm rather okay with there were some others that i wasn't as crazy about and we're gonna get to that further in as we go well i mean the books but, the books like what 80 years old at least and it's an at and least. it's a book like you can you can do things in that that people are more willing to accept but if you put them on screen in 2014 like you know you kind of have to update it a bit and like okay let's let's apply a little bit more logic to this uh, so the book was written in 1932. Oh. So, yeah, you're pretty spot on. That's like 80-something years ago, probably. I just remember, I just remember the interview where it's, uh, uh, Martin Freeman in an interview going, oh, well, this, this happens, oh, spoilers, well, the book's 80 years old, so what are you gonna do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, essentially. It's uh it's 86 years old today in 2018. So it was like 82 or something when this movie came out. Wow. So yeah, they they had some pretty old source material that they were going off of and yet they still turned it into a pretty fantastic movie. Yeah, they did. They did. Um so the dragon is down. But the sickness that he left behind is definitely felt in this movie it it starts to creep into the minds of those that stay in the horde too long and the one character that stays among all of that gold far more than anybody else is the king himself Thorin is almost like a completely different person in this movie mm -hmm. 
now that he's home, now that he's got his treasure trove, now that he doesn't have the dragon vying for control over it, it's like he's just completely shifted gears, completely had a change of heart, totally different person than what you saw in the first movie, and just it, not for the better by any means. Yeah, he's... It's almost to a frustrating extent that he's just so far gone with this, and he's been so infected with this. And I liked that they kind of play it off with Bilbo, and Bilbo has been the one that's had a conversation with 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 Smaug, and was like, you know, it flashes back to that scene where Smaug's like, I'm just, I'm willing to just let you take it, because I know it's going to drive him insane. Like, and that would be like, Smaug knows that no matter what, even if they do defeat him and take it, like, it's going to destroy them. And I think, and and just the whole, you know, thing about, and going back to that scene also to show, like, Bilbo did get the Arkenstone. It wasn't just he, it seemed like he didn't, but he had it the whole time and told this, this whole, uh, you know, moral dilemma of, does he give it up? And he, then he asks, um, what's his name, that, like, you know, what if we had it? And he's like, Balin's like, it probably would just make it worse if he had it. So it's probably best if it just stays lost. And that just furthers Bilbo's idea than just keep this away from Thorin. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're very visibly recognizing what dragon sickness does to someone. And the way that they did it in the movie was so interesting because you're having those flashbacks where you're realizing, okay, let's remind you of this, let's remind you of this. But then at the same time, there's this one sequence where where Thorin is just kind of going on a bit of a tangent. And at one point, Bilbo's looking at him and is hearing him talking, but it doesn't sound like Richard Armitage. It sounds like Benedict Cumberbatch. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like right. the, the the inflections that he gives and the growls that kind of escape from his from his from his voice box it sounds as if it's the dragon talking instead of Thorin and I know that they like spliced and edited it to where he was you know trying to sound like a dragon and that almost like goes along with the the lore of the dragons that I mentioned to you in last week's episode like there are certain instances in other fables involving dragons that the magic that's put on the gold curses the man that is so uh, so in love with it that it's ter- it's what turns him into a dragon. The dragon's sickness is affecting him so much that even though his form isn't changing, they are recognizing elements of the greed of Smaug in Thorin's character. And the way that they presented that was just very, very well done, in my opinion. Oh yeah, it's it's great and his I mean you see I mean you've had enough. It's funny how they did it they did a pretty good job with characterizing Thorin in the way that he's kind of a he's kind of an a-hole to begin with in an unexpected journey. He's kind of this guy who's not accepting Bilbo and all this kind of stuff. Then he comes around and you through the course of Desolation of Smaug, he is kind of this more you know, more caring, more of a more of a likable character. And then when you get here, he's back to kind of his old ways, but much, much worse. And you're understanding that this it really is the dragon sickness taking hold. And it's not him. It is this just horrible disease that's, you know, kind of contributed to, 
you know, his grandfather's fall and his father's fall, now he's succumbing to it. And, you know, it ultimately brings about just horribleness because if you think about it, like, you know, normal Thorin, if he was in his normal state of mind, like, they could have just avoided all this and then it wouldn't have come to them splitting up and trying to fight each other and then the orcs come. They could have been together to fight the orcs, but then that didn't happen. So it's like this domino effect of like horrible things that happen because Thorin is so pig-headed about this. Yeah. Yeah, pig-headed is, is definitely something that I would use to describe him, but the, the difference that I was noticing between Unexpected Journey and, and Five Armies is that in the in the first film, he's... He's very mission-oriented, he's very goal-oriented, and now that that goal's achieved, it's almost like he's not sure what to do, and all he does is obsess over the endless amount of gold that he's got, which probably isn't the healthiest thing, especially considering in the first and in the second movies, he promises a portion of that gold to somebody else. You know, in the contract in the first movie, it's an equal share among the 14 members of the company. Should they take back Erebor, each one is promised a 14th share. So he only gets one 14th of that gold, but he doesn't seem to recognize that in Five Armies. And then in uh, in The Desolation of Smaug, he promises some of the money to the people of Lake Town in order to help it grow and rebuild and thrive and all that good stuff. And it's almost like he completely forgets all of that, too. It's like he completely reneges that agreement. And when the people of Lake Town do come to him for help after Smaug terrorizes their town, what does he do? He freaking turns him away. Yeah, it it's funny how there is a bit of logic there when it comes to because you have the you obviously feel a lot of sorrow for the people of Lake Town and you understand like they're owed something. Like it, it was Thorin and his crews, you know, going in to go after Smaug is what led to them being their town literally being just destroyed and the people massacred. Like it's horrible and they are owed something for that, but at the same time, like Thorin kind of applies some logic to it and says, like, hey look, like we came to you for help and we had to basically you know ransom this like our birthright to this this gold and promise you some of it just so you'd help us and so and now you want to like take back but uh, but ultimately it's like just like you've got plenty of gold just give them some of it and let, let them stick around for a little while like you owe them this after what you've done to their village and but Thorin will have none of it and Thorin is just willing to literally die because he has all these armies literally at his doorstep about to like say hey we're gonna come in after you if you don't come out like you know you know you're you're outnumbered like there's there's no version of this where you come out on top yeah it's like logic has completely left him and and his honor has completely left him at least in unexpected journey i felt like he had some honor to him yeah like you you could tell that when the when the crunch time came when when Azog was closing in, he took a, a an oaken branch and he took up his sword and he stood up for his people on the edge of that cliff, like that was his honor bound side kind of showing up. But now that he's like achieved his end goal, he twists his logic and he manipulates his honor 
in order to stand up for what his perception of right is, as long as that perception allows him to keep as much gold as possible. Yeah, yeah, and and he kind of goes through this process of, you know, this anger towards, you know, wanting to get this done and, you know, kind of distrusting certain people, you know, especially Bilbo, and then comes back around, but ultimately is, you know, up down to, you know, him being on the receiving end of this really terrible disease. Yeah. And even his closest advisors and the people that he's been on this adventure with, they try and talk some reason into him and he just doesn't listen. You know, mm-hmm. the the people of Lake Town come to him asking for help first and he turns them away. But I I, I feel so uh like surely he must realize that now that Smaug is dead, that word is going to spread like wildfire. You know, people have avoided Erebor for so long because of the dreaded dragon. Now that he's gone, it's almost like it's it's almost like Erebor's a pinata that's been hit open. And it's like first one there gets it. And right now, Thorin is the first one there, but there's plenty of other people that want a claim to this mountain for more than one reason. And I also like the fact that just on just setting aside the dragon sickness and Thor's stubborn Thorin's stubbornness, like I like <laughs> you said Thor, <laughs> Thor, Thor, Thorin, whatever. Hey, Chris Hemsworth, stop being a jerk. <laughs> but. You know, I like the idea. Like that, as soon as they get there, it's okay. Now people want their fair share of this. Like they know that the orcs are coming because they want in on this and all this kind of stuff. And like that's the whole thing with this mountain is like the they nobody's won any part of it since the dragon's been there. But now that the dragon's gone. Now everybody wants in on it, and the dwarves are went from one problem to the next problem. Well, but what's interesting is. Everybody has a different motivation for being there. For Thorin's company, it's a birthright. For the people of Lake Town, they just want to be able to have enough to rebuild their town. For the elves, they want those uh, those white gems that shine like starlight. That's something that Thranduil's been after for freaking forever. And because he quote-unquote hosted the company, he feels like he's entitled to the portion that he is owed and is willing to go to war over it for Dane's company. It's about family and it's about sharing the family wealth. And he's willing to come to his cousin's aid. If it means, you know, a promise of money in exchange for the forces that he provides. Um, But for the orcs, it's not about the gold really. Uh, it's it's more about the strategic position. It's more about where the mountain is in relation to everything else. And from what I can gather, I'm trying to look at the map as best I can. There's like a map in the back of my book. Um, the uh, the Lonely Mountain is to the west of the Iron Hills, which is not in uh, in this picture really. Um, Hobbiton is even further to the west. There's a trail of mountains on the other side of Mirkwood that are the Misty Mountains. Um, 
Let me see. Let me see. Let me see. I don't really see where, shoot, where something like Mordor would be. But I do see that just north of the Lonely Mountain is the Grey Mountains. Hmm. And at the connection, kind of at this connection point between the Misty Mountains and the Grey Mountains is Gundabad. And Gundabad is where some of the orcs came from. Some of them came from Dol Guldur, and then uh, Azog sent for even more, and the ones that he sent for were from Gundabad. So I think part of the strategic position that they want is they want the Lonely Mountain so that they are in a much closer proximity to Gundabad. And by having that, it gives like a trail of different strategic places for them to set up the attack from Mordor. Yeah. That's interesting. So they, I'm trying to send you the picture because I know I'm just describing a whole bunch of things. I just love that there's an actual map of all this. (laughs) It's all, it's so detailed. Oh yeah, dude. Like Middle Earth has got a map and Westeros, the, the Game of Thrones territory has a map. I have loved studying Westeros and Essos trying to figure out the the lineage and the and the traditions involved in uh in in Game of Thrones lore but this is this is just as exciting for me because I I find out where Bayorn's establishment is I find out where the goblins come from and where Rivendell is in comparison to Mirkwood because yeah. I mean Rivendell is is a beautiful place don't get me wrong but when you look at how big Mirkwood is, you realize that the true power among the elves belongs with Thranduil. Because if he is in charge of Mirkwood, he's in charge of a hell of a lot more than Lord Elrond is. Yeah. Just putting that out there. Um, but speaking of Elrond, he actually makes an appearance in this movie. Yeah, he does. Uh, I, th- I thought we were... I thought we were pretty much done with uh, with Elrond, and then uh, it turns out that he and Saruman and Galadriel are the ones that basically break Gandalf out of prison. Yeah. You know, uh, what's his name? Radagast goes for help, goes for reinforcements, if you will, after Gandalf t- tells him to leave. And he brings in, like, what's essentially the best of the best. <laughs> you can't ask for and- better reinforcements. I know, and this rescue op was actually really, really cool because, you know, in the last movie, Gandalf kind of put all the pieces of the puzzle together, and now Galadriel and Elrond and Saruman are all alerted to it as well, and they're all very aware of who this enemy is and what kind of implications it has, and they face off against the Witch King of Agmar which is a really badass fighting sequence, not going to lie. Probably one of my favorite sequences of the whole trilogy because you've got Saruman in action, you've got Lord Elrond showing off his hand-to-hand combat skills, and then you see Galadriel go badass on everybody, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is the kind of power we're dealing with. We get a taste of her power in the... Lord of the Rings movies. Yeah, yeah. But to to see it in all its might and splendor in this film was truly a pleasure. Yeah, I, I also love Saruman. I love seeing him. 
you know, Christopher mm-hmm. Lee getting to show his stuff once, one last time. Well, I mean, he, he shows up and says, do you need assistance, my lady? <laughs> and then everything else is a stunt double. <laughs> Probably so. Still. Dude, I guarantee it. Christopher Lee's like 92 years old when they made this movie. I guarantee you he cannot fly around like that. But he's a badass, though, so don't. don't okay, he is. He is. He was. Don't don't, don't uh, doubt Christopher, Christopher Mother Effin Lee. Don't doubt him. Christopher Mother Effin for Lee, is that what you're saying? <laughs> That's a that's a that's a new nickname I haven't heard before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you're probably but, right. Yeah, he 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 deserved a stunt double for that. Well, I mean, he had a stunt double in Revenge of the Sith too, didn't he? And Attack of the Clones, I think. And Attack of the Clones, yeah. I but mean, I think two thousand two, two thousand five. I think he might be. I think he still holds the world record for the most sword fights in movies. The, the uh, actor that, with the most sword fights. Wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't really surprise I mean, me because technically, like, he had like a stunt double for a lot of his scenes in Star Wars. But at the same time, he did like he did some of the stuff. Like he like close ups and whatever. You can tell it's him. So like, it still would count. And of course, he did stuff way back. Yeah, that's true. That's true. His his fighting reputation goes a lot further back than anything from Lord of the Rings or or. Star Wars or anything previous to that it was it was his acting career f- previous that got him into those movies essentially so mm-hmm. it's a trick- chicken and egg scenario essentially if you Indeed. will but that moment is one of <laughs> as as well choreographed and as nerdy as I geeked out and as as well played out and thought out and and everything that that had to do with that sequence it's also one of my biggest complaints. Oh, really? Because when I was reading this uh, this last little bit of the book, I went back to, I want to say, chapter 14. I went to chapter 14 because that's, um, that's where Smaug takes off for Lake Town. So chapter 14 is where we kind of pick up with the Battle of the Five Armies. And then we go through, I want to say, chapter 19. So the Battle of the Five Armies encompasses just five chapters of the book. Wow. This this three-hour-long movie encompasses just five chapters. <laughs> because, like, in the book, I'm guessing that Smaug dying is towards the end. Smaug dying is in chapter 14. Smaug's death happens in the middle of chapter 14. So that quote that I read earlier came on page 228 of my book. Out of... Out of 276. Mm, Okay, that makes sense. So it's it's pretty late in the story. But they still do have this battle. They do still have this fight for control over the mountain. Like, this is something that absolutely still happens in this book. It's just very, very condensed. And so, going back to the the fight at Dol Guldur, um, this, um, this, this whole sequence of events, everything that's been happening here, Gandalf's appearance, uh, his, his departure from the party uh, at Mirkwood, and everything after that, is almost pure extrapolation. Like, they took a lot, 
a lot, a lot, a lot of creative liberties with that whole necromancer sequence. And let me tell you why. Because the very last chapter in the book, what might as well be the epilogue, after the battle is over, after everything has been taken care of, after Bilbo and Gandalf are on their way back to Hobbiton, they stop in Rivendell on their way home and meet up with Elrond. And this is literally like three sentences, and I'm going to read them for you right here. Uh, Let me see, let me see, let me see. Most of the tale he knew, for he had been in it, and had himself told much of it to the wizard on their way on their homeward way, or in the house of Bayorn. But every now and again he would open one eye and listen when a part of the story which he did not yet know came in, he being Bilbo Baggins. It was in this way that he learned where Gandalf had been to, for he overheard the words of the wizard to Elrond. It appeared that Gandalf had been to a great council of the white wizards, masters of lore and good magic, and that they had at last driven the necromancer from his dark hold in the south of Mirkwood. Wow. Ere long gone now, Gandalf was saying, the force will grow somewhat more wholesome. The north will be freed from that horror for many long years, I hope. Yet I wish he were banished from the world. That, my friends, is the story of the necromancer. In the entire book. (laughs) Wow. That one paragraph where Bilbo finally hears where Gandalf went off to is the entire story arc involving this necromancer. So they basically, you know, instead of just Gandalf disappearing and then reappearing later in the story, it's like it's extrapolated as to like what Gandalf was doing extrapolated like hell (laughs) extrapolated the hell out of that possibility it's just implied in the movies that it was actually Sauron it's just implied that it was possible that this could be the direction they were going and this whole concept of banishing the necromancer is basically what Galadriel did in this movie by banishing him back to Mordor. But all it did was allow Sauron an extra 60 years to build up his freaking army. Yeah. And so, I mean, I get it. Storytelling purposes, it's a really creative way to like tie things together between the two trilogies. But the fact that that entire story, with a scope of one and a half movies is summed up in the book in one paragraph. Like, that is the essence of the creative liberties taken in the entire Hobbit trilogy. Yeah, it's a great not example. Even, not even going to lie. Like, there's a lot of that kind of stuff that goes on in all three movies. But to me, that sequence is probably one of the most egregious. That was one of the biggest complaints that I had from the from the last movie, and it kind of gets wrapped up and summed up in in this movie as well. I enjoyed the Sauron tie-ins from a movie-watching perspective. But from the book, it's just not there. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, what's really in- what's really interesting is basically everything else from this movie actually is there. I was very pleasantly surprised to find out a lot of the critical moments that we see in this movie actually turn up in the book. 
Wow. Like, like for example, Thranduil and Bard going to the mountain and trying to negotiate with Thorin. That happens in the book. Wow, that's cool. Um, Dane and the dwarves coming up over the hillside and confronting the woodland elves. That happens in the book. Um, let me see. What was another? What was another big moment that happened? The eagles. The eagles were something that happened in the book. I, for a long time, thought that that was a creative liberty, but no. In the book, they actually talk about receiving reinforcements from the eagles. That's cool. So there are a lot of moments that do actually show up in the book, and one of the most critical ones. Um, involves Bilbo taking the Arkenstone, which we know is in his possession, and deciding to leave the keep, leave uh, Erebor, and sneak into Thranduil's encampment down in the valley. Because he's basically trying to wait Thorin out. He's like, he doesn't have any food, he's going to starve, and then we'll take our share. So he's basically just trying to wait him out. And while he's waiting him out, Bilbo decides he doesn't want to see the dwarves die needlessly, and he wants to see the the elves and the and the man, like the men from Lake Town, get what they deserve. And so he decides to take the Arkenstone and claim it as his fourteenth share of the treasure. Which, I mean, even still, I don't know if that Arkenstone is worth a 14th of all the treasure in Erebor, but it's it's what he was willing to stake his claim to. Right. And that, too, happens in the book. Wow. So there there are a lot of really good storytelling elements from this movie that do translate over from the book, and I was very pleasantly surprised by that, especially that sequence, because it's a great character moment for Bilbo, in my opinion, when he's more than just a burglar. He's a negotiator if you will. And he's trying to find a compromise that everybody is willing to agree to. Maybe not happily, as Thorne clearly expresses later on, but he's he's working for stuff that is more than just his return to Bag End, which is kind of what his mentality had been for the last two movies, is get this done, get home kind of thing. Right. I, now, I, I like in the movie that he is like, Gandalf's like, well, you need to go. Like, this is going to get bad. You need to get out of here, get back to Hobbiton. And and he's like, no. Like, and you can't, you're, you know, I'm not suggesting what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. You can't stop me, and I have a role to play here. I came all this way. I'm going to finish it. Yeah, and he did. He He saw everything through... Right up to the very end, which was really impressive. Mm-hmm. I really admired that sequence. And and again, another one that showed up in the book was Bard's return to the mountain with the Arkenstone in tote. And uh, I believe in, in the book, uh, Thorin is kind of taken aback by it, just very confused as to as to how it got there. And actually begrudgingly agrees to uh, to pay a share of the gold in exchange for the Arkenstone. That's how desperately he wants it back. He begrudgingly agrees to it, but then uses stall tactics to wait on his cousin to show up. Huh. 
And so they kind of condensed that a little bit where it's like, we've got the stone and they're kind of waving at him in his, in the movie. And he goes, will you choose peace or will you choose to fight? And then he hears the, the marching of his people over the hill. And he's like, I choose to fight. Yeah. So, I mean, from, from a storytelling standpoint, I appreciate that they kind of sped that up a little bit so that you're not just watching a whole bunch of stall tactics for a couple of days. You're speeding up the process and allowing the events to unfold a little bit more naturally. That kind of stuff, I can totally forgive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's and it's interesting you're saying all this in a film. I mean, like right off the bat, you're like, well, this is like the last like five chapters of this story. Like, and they turn this yeah. into like a, you know a you know two three plus hour movie. But then like all the stuff that they did take from the book and put into the movie. Like, that's pretty impressive that, you know, I, I understand the criticism that, hey, you should try to follow the books as much as possible and maybe not be so egregious with your, you know, your 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 creative liberties here. But at the same time, they did, in certain cases, kind of go off the rails, but also in other cases, they, they did do pretty well with kind of paying homage to the source material. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that I loved about unexpected journey and it's one of the things that i'm coming to appreciate about this movie now as well is that as far as you know if you were to watch this movie and then go read just those five chapters you would actually see a lot of the parallels it would almost be like a lot of the elements of the movie were coming to life in the book it sparked the imagination in me and i was really encouraged by that I was I was really, really impressed and really encouraged. In fact, I didn't realize this until I started reading. There's actually a point in the book where actually they that like Tolkien very descriptively says, So began a battle that none had expected, and it was called the Battle of the Five Armies. Huh. So they didn't just take this name out of thin air and it's like, oh, there's five armies and they're gonna fight. It's like, no, it literally is called the Battle of Five Armies. Uh, It says, upon one side were the goblins and the wild wolves, and upon the other were elves, men, and dwarves. Ever since the fall of the great goblin of the Misty Mountains, the hatred of of their race for the dwarves had rekindled to fury. So, goblins and orcs kind of get mixed up sometimes. Mm Mm-hmm. They kind of they kind of get interchanged, and you see goblins fighting for Sauron in the Lord of the Rings, and so to to transition out of goblins and kind of like put them in the past and use the orc armies as the primary antagonist, I get it, especially because of how interchangeable they can be. Sometimes orcs and goblins fight together in one army, and so to 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 blend those two together essentially to make Azog and Balg the primary antagonists I'm I'm actually really okay with that. Yeah. And and it's it's again true to the source material because you've got Dane Ironfoot, you've got Men of the Lake, you've got the Woodland Elves all fighting on one side which we see very very well in this movie. And then you've got the the orc army from Dol Guldur, and you've got the orc army that Bolg calls for from uh, Gundabad. So you've got five armies vying for the one mountain. 
just as you would in the book. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. So I've got to hit the pause button and stop talking about the book for just a little bit and talk about what is potentially my favorite sequence in all of Middle-earth. And then after that, I'm going to talk about my favorite sequence. By all means. By all means. I watched this sequence with, with like, anticipation. Like, I was pretty much on the edge of my seat this time around. The same way I was the last time around when I watched it. Because dwarves are very quick to a fight. And when they saw the orcs start making their way down into the valley, they ran to the fight and set up defensive positions just waiting for them. They were not about to be outdone by the elves. And they went around, they circled the elven army and set up a defensive position so that they would be the first ones to encounter the enemy. That's how quick to a fight they are. That's how proud they are. That's how they didn't want to be upstaged by an elf. And they set up a pretty solid defensive position, not going to lie. Like, the shielding that they had set up there oh, looked really yeah, impressive. They, they, they had, like, built a wall, like, in seconds. It was really, really impressive the way that they did it. And they're sitting there with spears and pikes ready to go, and you see the orc army closing in on them, and I don't remember who it was. I want to say it might have been Bilbo, wondering if the elves were ever going to do anything because they were in such tight formation, it didn't look like they were going to move and they were just going to let the dwarves do the fighting for them. And then at the very last possible second, there's this one camera shot where you're seeing the the, the dwarves and their defensive position on the left side, the orcs army closing in on the right side, and then jumping over the top of the wall of dwarves comes an army of elven swordsmen. Oh my gosh, was that breathtaking. Oh my gosh. I don't know who came up with that idea. I don't know how the hell they choreographed that to look so beautiful, but it's one of the most amazing sequences I've ever seen in a fight scene, period. It's crazy. And that's coming from somebody who's watched Game of Thrones two times through. Don't get me wrong. I love the Battle of the Bastards. I think it's amazing. But that particular moment, that particular sequence, is one of my favorites in all of Middle-earth and probably one of my favorite fighting nuances, period. It was brilliant. It is. That's that's crazy awesome. Just the the idea and that the fact that you're not expecting it, and the fact that it comes so quickly, and then you're like, you know, like all these dwarves that they're you know they're building this wall, and then over the top of them literally come the elves, and just using the size their size differences as like this advantage of like we can just hop over the elves, hop over the the dwarves and and attack these orcs while they've built this literally human wall out of it like it's it's crazy it was just it it was like teamwork or some strategy that neither of them really had established obviously the rivalry between them was so that they never collaborated on that you know they never talked to each other about it and were like, oh, hey, we should do it this way, and once we set up, then it'll be ready it's for like you guys ultimate, to do your It's thing. like the ultimate, you know, the enemy of the enemy. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Like, yep. that's that moment personified. Yep. is like yep. these two people that literally would fight, like, just, you know, at the drop of a hat 
having to come together to actually fight these orgs because you know they have a common enemy. Yep, yep. It's I mean it's a it's a beautiful, perfect description. You hit the nail on the head. Like they were about to fight with each other, and then as soon as they realized the common foe that was coming out of the woodwork, almost literally. They decided, eh, we probably shouldn't be fighting with each other, because if we do, we're not going to make it out of this. And, oh my gosh, the volley of arrows that the elves shoot. They've always been such excellent marksmen, but to to see it rain down arrows like that, the way that it did, just absolutely breathtaking. It was, oh, it was so pretty. And... Again, coming back to Billy Connolly as Dane Ironfoot. Do you do you know Billy Connolly? Do you know who he is? I no, I don't. I don't think I've heard that name before. Okay, so the only reason I really know Billy Connolly, like he's he's famous for other things. He's he's kind of one of those one of those famed actors that took on these other roles, kind of at the tail end of his career, if you will. But I. I really know him, and this is this might date me a little bit. Um, <laughs> Billy Connolly is. Let me see. What is, what is he famous for? He he does the voice of Fergus in the in the Pixar movie Brave, but oh. I've only seen that movie once, and I'm pretty sure you haven't seen nope. it. Um, what else is he known for? He was in Gulliver's Travels. <laughs> he was in, he he was in Open Season. He was Uncle Monty in the movie, A Series of Unfortunate Events. Uh, what else is he known for? Beautiful Joe, Columbo. He was <laughs> he was in a bit role in Third Rock from the Sun. That's funny. Um, let me see. What do I? What was it that I knew him for? There it is. Okay, he was the voice of Ben in the Disney movie Pokey, Pocahontas. Pocahontas. <laughs> Pocahontas. Um. But what I knew him for was he played the role of Billy Bones in the Muppet rendition of Treasure Island. Oh, my. Muppet Treasure Island was probably the first Muppet movie I ever watched. And given my love for pirates and adventure, I ended up watching that movie several times over after that. (laughs) Um, but yeah, that's what I knew Billy Connolly from. And when I heard his voice as Dane in this movie, my first instinct was like, it's Captain Bones. (laughs) I was so excited about that. Uh, one of these days we should do like a series of Muppet movies, dude. And we should include Muppet Treasure Island because Long John Silver is played by none other than Tim Curry. I would love to revisit some Muppet movies. I haven't seen I haven't seen a Muppet movie in probably fifteen years, I swear. I think I think the original Muppet movie and maybe Muppets Take Manhattan and Muppet Treasure Island. We need to do like a trilogy of What about those three where does Muppets like in Space come come in? Oh Muppets in Space is way later. That's the like, last one that I saw. Well, it's one of the last ones that they made until they rebooted the series a few years ago. That makes sense. It was it was one of the very last ones they did. And I was I was going to mention that one because it's kind of sci-fi-ish, 
but it's also probably one of the lamer ones that they ever made. <laughs> like, yeah, I hear you. Like at one point there was a talking sandwich. Yeah. That's how. That's how kind of. That's how kind of out. But there that's it was. normal in Muppet Land. That's normal. In, yeah, you're right. In in Muppet Lord, that's actually pretty common. You're right. So, I mean, I. I liked it, and I liked that they used uh, Celebration by Cool and the Gang as their, like, closing music type thing. I now I remember. Yep. I remember that. <laughs> um, I, think Julia, I think Julia Louise Dreyfus was in that movie as well. Really? Because it was, it was kind of prime, uh, prime 90s. It was 1999 when that movie came I out. I saw that movie in the theater. I remember almost nothing about it except the the experience of seeing in the theater you 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 uh man you know what my first like my earliest movie going memory would be it would either be when i saw chicken run in 2000 in the theaters or when i saw this is really gonna date me um Thomas and the Magic Railroad. Oh, oh, that brings back <laughs> memories. Oh, Thomas and the Magic Railroad. Uh, what's his name? Peter Peter Fonda, isn't it? Isn't it? Peter Peter Fonda, Mara Wilson from uh, Alec Matilda, Baldwin, <laughs> and Alec Baldwin as Mister Conductor. That was like in his not so heyday when he was just trying to get some work and he took that job and did not know what he was getting into. Poor guy. Poor guy. <laughs> he 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 put a, he built a stand stand up performance in it though. Oh, he did. Oh, he did. Like hats off to him. Uh I I really don't have much to say about it other than <laughs> that. Do like I. Sorry. I t- mm. um I'm trying to see where does maybe it wasn't Julia Louise Dreyfus in this movie? Rob Schneider was in it. He had a bit role. Was he a bad guy um, or something? He was a he was a producer. Uh, he was he was a TV producer. Um, the bad guy was played by Jeffrey Tambor, I believe. Okay. K. Edgar Singer, Ray Liotta was in it. David Arquette was in it. Andy McDowell. Okay. Andy McDowell, Kathy Griffin, Hulk Hogan. Oh my gosh, I'm getting so many flashbacks now from this movie. Thanks for nothing. <laughs> I love it. 1999. Uh, oh. So when did Thomas of the Magic Railroad come out? I think it came out in 2001. So that means Chicken Run is actually my earlier memory. If it was in 2001. No, it was also in 2000. 2000. Man, 2000 was a terrible time for movies. <laughs> oh, boy. Sorry. I don't, mean to, I don't mean to throw them under the bus or under the train or whatever, but, man, I'm sorry. We're not, we're I, not talking about classic movies here. You know, we're, I, we're talking about them because we saw them as kids. We remember yeah. them. Yeah. And, I mean, there's plenty of memories associated with each one of those, obviously, but... I'm sorry, Chicken Run. It's one of the better claymation videos I've ever seen, but it's not one of the better movies I've ever seen. Not by a long shot. No. The exits <sighs> are located here and here. And in the event of an emergency, simply put your head between your knees and kiss your bum goodbye. 
wow. Okay. That was a tangent right there. That was a yeah. hell of a tangent. It was a hell of a tangent and probably just a good, decent break point before we come back to Billy Connolly and the fight and everything else that has to do with this movie. We are going to hit the pause button for just a bit here, go to a brief program identification and commercial break, and we'll see you on the flip side as we pick up and continue this discussion of The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies. This is Obi-Wan Kenobi, and I have drifted into the underworld. The Star Wars underworld. I have a bad feeling about this. Hey, y'all. This is Ben Hart here. I know y'all just heard me on the IPC talking all things geeky and fun. Now I'm here to tell y'all about my other podcast. It's called The Star Wars Underworld, about all things Star Wars. We talk Star Wars The Clone Wars, Star Wars The Force Awakens, Star Wars Last Jedi, Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, and so much more. I record it with my friends Chris and Dominic, who are here to tell y'all all about it. Hello, Chris. Hello, Ben. I'm so excited to talk about Star Wars this week. It's fun. It's funny. We're going to have a great time. Hey, guys, I am so nostalgic for mall packaging, and I love being on the Star Wars Underworld podcast talking all the latest Star Wars news. Well, now that y'all had a little taste of the show and you know what to expect, you should check out more episodes by going to StarWarsUnderworld.com or by searching for the show on the iTunes, the Apple Podcast, the Google Play, and all sorts of things. And may the Force be with y'all. It's a wrap, eh? And we're back, continuing our discussion of The Hobbit, Battle of the Five Armies. I'm Zach, here with Ben, and uh, we were just talking about Billy Connolly a moment ago before we went on an epic Muppet tangent, uh, thanks largely in part to my ADD, so we're back on track. And uh, one thing that I did notice that I really, really enjoyed about Dane Ironfoot's character and just the dwarves in general was their use of creative animals... And also creative weaponry. Mm-hmm. The, I think Dane's weapon of choice was basically a giant hammer, wasn't it? <laughs> I think so. I think he was just going around whacking people, and it was 
pretty cool to see because I was like, whoa, okay, this uh, this this could be interesting. Show me what you got. And for a while, he was pretty much just smacking the heck out of people and smashing some of the orcs. Like, I, I, I swear to goodness, I think orcs are like the Lord of the Rings equivalent of stormtroopers. You just they are. hit them. Okay, there was one scene that I found rather unforgivable. I think... Uh, up on the up on the hilltop, Bilbo sees a whole bunch of orcs coming his way, and he throws rocks at them. <laughs> I saw that, and they just they go down. They're just like, and he just oh, oh my god, a tiny a tiny little halfling, and he just plunking stones at him, and he's just going all David and Goliath on them, just like plunk, oh, I'm dead, plunk, oh, I'm dead. You, you half oh, expect concussion. You half expect Bilbo to go like, look at these guys. They're just like paper. I'm just gonna throw rocks at them. Blip, 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 blip. They're gone. Oh, paper. No, wait. Paper beats rock. They were like scissors. Uh, maybe. Maybe. Because rock beats scissors. I am th- I was kind of channeling my, my Drax there. Because remember, Drax is like, I, I consider these people like paper people, and they're Tried to be into oh, okay. Guardians I was of the going, I was going, I was going a rock paper scissors reference. <laughs> I totally wasn't getting that. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's fine. But that that was kind of out there. I was like, are you for real right now? Like, are you being serious? Like, you just, you just, you just throw stuff at them, and and then they're just gonna fall. They're just gonna die. Okay, well. Good thing you've got about 20,000 orcs because this one little dude's chunking about 10 rocks at you and he's killed about 10 orcs with those 10 rocks. Good job, dude. All, all but, you need, uh, everybody just grab a rock and start throwing them. Like, I know, seriously. right? Like, why is this a, a fight for the mountain? It should be a fight to see how many stones you can skip off the heads of the orcs and kill with one stone. Can you, can you kill two orcs with one stone? Can you do it? Uh, is, is it possible? I, I believe it's not impossible the way that Bilbo was throwing them. Either he's just got mad accuracy or he's got, like, telekinesis and he's, like, zipping them through their heads instead of onto their heads. I I don't really know. I, I, can't, I can't explain that one away. That's a creative liberty that I'm just like, uh, I don't know about that one. But it's there. It's in the story. And uh, we'll just call it a, his David and Goliath moment and just work with it. I don't know. Yeah. But the one interesting element... In all of this, I mean, we mentioned earlier how the dwarves were quick to the fight. As soon as they saw the orcs, they rounded the elves and tried to, to head them off at the pass. And then the elves tried to one-up them and vice versa, etc., etc., on and on, trying to get a higher kill count. It's like a, a giant version of the rivalry between Gimli and Legolas. Like, like, they're both fighting for the higher kill counts. But in the midst of all that... In the midst of all of the fighting, there's one particular character that's uh, that's absent right now. Uh, one Mr. Oakenshield has not joined the fray, and his company's getting anxious. They're sitting there up in the tower watching all this unfold, and they're like, Dane's getting beat back, the orcs are closing in, everybody's kind of scattered. Why is the king not rallying to this cause? Yeah. Because he's sitting there sulking and minding his own beeswax, taking care of his gold. I like how I like that one scene where I, I don't know the dwarf's, dwarf's name, but like he goes to Thor and he's like, "We're sitting here, we should be fighting, and they're coming for the gold and whatever." And Thor's like, 
well, let's go fortify. Let's put the put the gold farther underground. That's what she. That's, that's what she. We should actually be doing right now because, you know, that's all that really matters is the gold. Just, just hide it more. Just, just, just hide it. Yeah, that's that's pretty much what happens. Mm-hmm. Like, he, uh, none of his advisors, none of his people, are really getting through to him. You know, Bilbo tries to talk some sense into him unsuccessfully. I think Balin tries to talk to him at one point. Dwalin, one of his nephews, either Feely or Killy, tries to talk to him. And it's like nobody is getting through to him that this is what a dwarf should be doing. This is this is what's expected of us. And when we're not doing it, we're bringing dishonor to the House of Durin. And he just doesn't get it. Either he doesn't get it or he just didn't care for the longest time. And then he kind of has like a moment of truth. And apparently this is a creative liberty, but it's one that I really enjoyed because after they released the unfinished mold of the gold statue onto Smaug, the gold had to go somewhere, right? Like yeah. it, it, it kind of ended up settling and it turned into like this giant golden floor in one of the great halls. And he's walking along it now that the gold has hardened into place. And he kind of hallucinates and sees Smaug underneath the gold. Yeah. And yeah. starts to starts to recognize that there's some similarities there that are making him rather uncomfortable. And then the hallucination kind of finishes with the gold kind of encircling him, almost like a tidal pool or a wave or something like that. And you're realizing that he is both metaphorically and quote-unquote literally being consumed by his love of gold. Mm -hmm. And you have to watch that unfold. You can't just, like, have words being spoken to you telling you this is what happened. It's more of an appeal to an intelligent audience, which I really, really love when they do that. Because now we're assuming for ourselves, we're, we're... talking amongst ourselves saying oh yeah he's being consumed by the gold without you know a narrator or or some outside character source telling you you're being consumed by the gold like they're not telling you at face value it's something you have to read between the lines for great great sequence yeah and it's and it's this turning point for thorin that now Mm -hmm. and thankfully you know, after a very long and frustrating thing, he can finally, like, break through the fog and realize, hey, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, this is not me. This is not who I am. And, you know, it's 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 refreshing to have the real Thorin come back and actually do something. Very much so. Very, very much so. And, again, it's... Uh... It's one of those moments in the book that actually happens. Uh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to find that particular sequence. I've got a whole bunch of different, um, I've got a whole bunch of different bookmarks in here. And uh, let me see. Now Bard was fighting to defend the Eastern Spur, and yet giving slowly back, and the Elf Lords were at bay about their king upon the southern arm, near the watchpost on Ravenhill. Suddenly there came a great shout, and from the gate came a trumpet call. They had forgotten Thorin. 
part of the wall moved by levers fell out with a crash into the pool. Out leapt the king under the mountain, and his companions followed him. That's almost word for word what happened in the movie. Huh. You've got you've got Bomber up there with his big horn. He he lets out a call just as things are looking grim. The armies are spread thin, and then a a great crash comes from the castle and the wall comes down and it goes into the moat and they come running across the moat and out comes Thorin's company to provide aid. Now here's here's the funny thing and and strategically this makes little to no sense but for the sake of the movie it's great but the the strategian in me is sitting here going okay number one what good is 12 dwarves gonna do in this massive frenzy realistically what good is 12 dwarves coming out of a castle going to do number two Everybody had fallen back and regrouped to the base of the moat. And when Thorin came out, he started charging and led that charge back into the orc company. Basically giving up the defensive position that they had just set up by the moat. Yeah, they destroy it. Well, it they destroy the wall. Just, well, yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. They, they've they've destroyed the wall, so you kind of have to push back. I get that. But, like, if you look at Dane's people, they had basically set up a similar shielding position the way they did at the beginning of the fight, but they did it back closer to the moat. Mm-hmm. And they were basically going to be able to hold off the orcs from there, make them come to you. But by Thorin charging like that, he's now got, like, a break in that place. And everybody has to kind of follow his lead, follow his charge back into the fray rather than making them come to him. Right. So so not only are you providing a reinforcement of 12, but you're charging into an army of thousands because it's great for the movie. <laughs> but, I'm like, come on, strategically it doesn't but, make but, any sense. But think about this, though. A few main characters are way more are way more powerful than a bunch of needless extras. They're way more yeah. Angry. Like it's it's the unfortunate reality of the movie industry. Exactly, it, it just kind of throws tactics out the window. Exactly. You, if you if you got a few main characters on the battlefield, they've got plot armor and they're going to survive and they're going to kick some ass. And that's basically what happens. <laughs> it does. Some, Somehow, okay, here's the other thing that I don't really get, and maybe I'm being nitpicky, but... Oh, you're being nitpicky, the, but that's what we're here for. Why? Okay, fine. Here's the other nitpick that I'm going to provide. Where the hell did the bighorn sheep come from? <laughs> you're right, where did that come from? Where? Like, did they just pop out of Dane's butt or something? I like, mean, that's where possible. have they been keeping? Where have they been keeping? He rode in on a pig, for crap's sake. <laughs> A pot, he rode a in pot belly pig of all things. He rode in on a giant armor plated pot belly pig with an army of five hundred dwarves, and then somehow, somewhere in the middle of all this fray, they find three or four bighorn sheep, and they just happen to be sure footed enough to climb up the mountain so they can go fight Azog. How 
freaking convenient is that? I love it, though. You got a whole bunch of sure-footed, cloven-hooved animals that just happen to know how to climb the specific mountain that you need to traverse in order to fight your big enemy. Woo! That was really convenient. Yeah. Just throwing that out there. Just, just, yeah, I'm just gonna put that out there. Um, but, you know, the other, the other side of this, the other, the other element to this is that in this movie, you've actually got two big bads that you're fighting. Because in, uh, Desolation of Smaug, Azog got called back to Dol Guldur so that he could raise up the army. But Bolg was sent to go get the forces from Gundabad. So you've got two commanders, essentially, that you need to face off against. And believe it or not, the two of them are actually related. Yeah. Did you know that? I think. Did you know that Azog and Bolg are actually father and son? Oh, I didn't catch that. Well, according to the books, they are anyway. His uh, in in the movie, he kind of treats Bolg as like his first officer or something. But let me see. At one point, Gandalf is trying to get everybody prepped for war, and he says, "Dread has come upon us, uh, upon you all. Alas, it has come more swiftly than I'd guessed." The goblins are upon you. Bolg of the North is coming. O Dane, whose father you slew in Moria. Behold, the bats are above his army like a sea of locusts. They ride upon wolves and wargs are in their train. So then there's this little asterisk next to the name Bolg, and underneath it says, Son of Azog. See page 24. So you go to page 24... And this is way back in Bilbo's Hobbit hole. This is way back in Hobbiton when they're talking about it. Um, they're talking about the key that Gandalf gives to Thorin. And he says, I did not get hold of it. I was given it, said the wizard. Your grandfather Thror was killed, you remember, in the mines of Moria by Azog the Goblin. Yeah. So Azog really, that's pretty much the only mention he gets in the book and that sentence that one sentence is that entire fight sequence between the dwarves and the orcs at the mines of Moria where Azog holds up Thor's head in defiance and Thorin gets his name Oakenshield like that entire fight sequence that's from that sentence right there now now the the son you're talking about that's the Kind of the minion, kind of the head minion orc, right? The one that fights Legolas, yes. Yes, and see, that leads me to my point about my favorite sequence in the movie. Ah. That sequence between him and Legolas when when Legolas collapses that tower and uses yep. it as a bridge to get to um, that dude. Perfection. Bold. That is B-O-L-G. That is incredible. Like I, I love it when they they put action sequences like on a constantly changing and evolving and being destroyed like element, and that like mm-hmm. them going across. And there's one time when 
like the wall is falling and Legolas is just like hopping up like bricks as they're falling. Like it's yep. it's ridiculous, but it's also amazing. Yep. Just throw gravity out the freaking window <laughs> by this point, man. Who gives a crap? No. No. It's Legolas anyway. He defies all physics and logic. It, it is. Like it really it, I mean it is. He This is a guy this enough. is a guy that surfed down a stairwell on a shield. All right. This is Legolas we're talking about. Okay. Okay. Fair. Fair. <laughs> This this is a guy who who killed an Oliphant single handedly using three arrows to the head. Exactly. Like this guy this guy's lived quite a life. He's he's lived quite a life. And the fact that, you know, he was able to use his marksmanship to to kill a few of the orcs that were coming towards Thorin was really cool. The the final blow that he deals to um to Bog, and then he's able to take that sword and throw it into the heart of the orc that's about to kill Thorin on the on the waterfall. Mm-hmm. Like this is beautiful because he grabs a hold of it as his enemy is falling, and he takes it and he picks it up, and he gets to use it against Azog, like. Just when I thought Thorin versus Azog couldn't get any better, like, it was almost like that first fight sequence between the two of them was just the prelude, you know? And then you get to have this amazing sequence up on a on a frozen waterfall. Like, the setting could not have been any better. A frozen Winter. waterfall on a frozen lake. Like, it's so great. It it was just beautiful. It was it was so beautiful, so well choreographed, and then that that one sequence where they're basically teetering and tottering back and forth, and uh, you know their their balance is shifting just above the frozen water, and Thorin kind of comes to his senses and realizes that he can play that to his advantage, and tosses Azog's own weapon to him to cause the balance to shift and then he just steps off the ice flow and he basically sinks himself because he's got too much weight on that side of the ice flow. I love it. He's like, oh, I just realized I can just walk away and you'll die. Yeah. like It was like this big light bulb moment and he was like, oh, okay. And then he just does it and it just falls and it just splashes into the water and you're just like, Oh, he just did that. Okay. Now, I gotta say, when I first watched this movie, I had never seen Game of Thrones before. Coming back around now to having seen it twice through, I was definitely reciting to myself, Winter is here. Winter is here. (laughs) Several times over. Because that's basically what had been happening. They had been making this, this travel from spring, summer, into fall, and now that they've finally made it, winter is finally upon them, and that's why everything looks so frozen and foreboding. I kept reciting, winter is here, winter is here to myself, and I swear there was one sequence in that that moment where Azog is underneath the ice and he's kind of floating his way towards the frozen waterfall, there was one moment in there when 
he very, very much resembled the Night King from Game of Thrones. And mm. I I lost it just a little bit. <laughs> I was like, oh, dude. Oh, dude. Because at that point, I feel like we had seen the Night King, but maybe not in his full glory or in fullest details. And we definitely had not seen the kind of, uh, I don't know what you want to call it. Um, what is it when some arson, arson, I was about to say necrophilia, but I knew that wasn't right. (laughs) Um, we had never seen that kind of arson on that kind of a scale before, but then you get to season seven of game of Thrones and you realize that a lot of the the dragon sequences in in season seven are based off of um, based off of Smaug, and you realize that there's a lot of wintry elements used here in Battle of the Five Armies that they definitely end up borrowing in Game of Thrones as well. Mm, yeah. I don't know if it was I don't know if it was consciously or subconsciously, but going back through these movies, I definitely recognized a lot of parallels that I didn't see before. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, they are... I mean, Lord of the Rings and and uh, Game of Thrones are very very different, but also very similar in a lot of ways. They've got, they've got a lot of similarities. They really, really do. Um, let me see. What was I looking at from this? I'm trying to figure out why I have these different markings, why I have each of these different... Uh, place tags these placeholders because i don't i don't know what this one's for um (laughs) sorry i have no idea why i had that one (laughs) i don't know why that bookmark was there but i'm taking it out i only have one left and i'm saving that for later so let's let's go to um Let's go to the death in the family. Yeah. Because before we get to that, that big culmination between Azog and, uh, and Thorin, we've, uh, we've got the lines of Durin suddenly snuffed out because Feely and Keely are both tragically killed. That's, that surprised me that all of a sudden we get to the end and, uh, people start dying. Pretty, Mm -hmm. pretty surprising. Well, and it was the way that they died too, like... I was not expecting I was not expecting Feely to meet his end the way that he did and I was not expecting Keeley's death to be so drawn out but it uh it definitely left a mark on Toriel that's for sure. And you're kind of expecting Toriel to die because she wasn't in the books. <laughs> but then Did and, you ever did you ever see um The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh? No. Oh, dude, it's a classic. Oh, it's such a classic. I, I probably enjoy that one more than any of the other Winnie the Pooh movies they've done so far. Really? Although I still have yet to see Christopher Robin, Neither so I. I may need, I may need to adjust my uh, my my views on that slightly. But uh, from what I hear, it's a nostalgia trip based on the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh. So if you don't have the original, you don't have Christopher Robin, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, chicken before the egg kind of thing again. But there's uh, there's one character. Uh, by the name of Gopher in Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, who is consciously aware that he doesn't exist in the book. And it's really, <laughs> really weird because he's like, 
Did somebody call for an excavation expert? I'm not in the book, but I'm at your service. <laughs> it's like Deadpool or something. Basically, he he like it's breaking the fourth wall before that was actually a thing in movies. <laughs> he he flat out told the other characters, "I'm not in the book, you know." It was the weirdest thing, but he was such a beloved character that he ended up coming back again. Oh my god! But it was that's funny. It was pretty funny, but yeah, you kind of expect Toriel to die, and then it turns out to be her love interest that dies instead. And at one point, she says something to the effect of, "If this is love, I do not want it." Mm-hmm. Like she's realizing the cost of losing a loved one and the the pain that's involved with that. And at one moment, for a brief, a very brief instance, Thranduil isn't really an ass to her and kind of says, like, the reason it hurts so much is because it was real. And I was like, oh, why do you do that to me? Oh, why did you do that to me? That is, that is heartbreaking. It really was. But here's the interesting thing. It's also true to the book. Mm-hmm. Feely and Keeley are described as the King's Guard, essentially, because they are his um they're they're his nephews, and so they are the ones that are like closest to him, and so they are supposed to stay close to him in battle. And so if Thorin was knocked down in battle, it stands to reason that Feely and Keeley were to die in battle as well. Oh wow. So they took some they took some creative liberties as to how and who was there and who said goodbye to them and stuff but the thing is the way tolkien wrote the book it's kind of like he did that on purpose it it's it's kind of it's kind of hard to describe but basically one of the final chapters um, Bilbo sees the eagles fly in as reinforcements in the book and then basically gets conked on the head right after he sees those reinforcements and he's unconscious for the remainder of the battle. And so because you're reading the book from Bilbo Baggins's perspective, you really don't see all of the other stuff that transpires. So by the time he's resumed consciousness, Thorin is on his final breaths, and Tolkien just writes at one point that Feely and Keeley are dead. Like they just they just fell in battle. And so there's there's just very little explanation as to what happened or how it happened. It just happened. And so that final sequence in the movie now has a lot of room for interpretation because we've got to kill off Feely and Keeley, and Thorin has to be mortally wounded in battle, but it doesn't say how. Yeah. And so that creativity is what ends up shining through in those final moments is you get to have that moment with Toriel. You get to have that moment with Legolas killing Balg. You get to have... Azog versus Thorin 2.0 because none of that is specifically stated in the book. It only says that he was mortally wounded while Bilbo was unconscious. Oh, so, okay. So all of that stuff is now basically free reign for you to kind of include into your story. 
because we don't really know what happens in the story. In a way, it's kind of a cop-out, trying to cut the battle short and wrap up the story, if you will. But instead of cutting things short in the movie, they kind of extrapolated on it and turned it into a great final climactic fight scene. Well, I mean, isn't that kind of this whole movie trilogy personified? Taking one sentence and turning it into a giant epic fight? (laughs) Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, I'm not, much. I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, the sequence with the necromancer, the fight at the Mines of Moria, and now this climactic battle between Thorin and Azog, they're some of the, the better moments of the trilogy, but they're also some of the least described in the book. Yeah. And so that's where creative liberties come into play. Is I... They take this idea and they're like, well, the book doesn't say not to do this. So we're going to do this. And I think maybe from a certain point of view, I mean, let's face it, sometimes media, I mean, movies that we consider classic movies are still good, but sometimes they don't connect with us as well as maybe they did 80, 100 years ago. Because that's just, the audience is different, change, and movies have changed. And I think, you know, just media in its in its most, you know, rarest form, or the, its initial form being books or whatever, like still, it's it's different. It's made for a different audience of a different time, and maybe because that these scenes they were kind of extrapolated from, and kind of taken from the book, and say one sentence turned into a whole sequence, like it's because it's being kind of translated and created by someone in this era as opposed to taking something that's taken directly out of the books which is you're talking about an 80 plus year old piece of fiction so Mm -hmm. it's kind of a you know kind of a back and forth with like this is old stuff that is good stuff but also like these action sequences it wasn't made for a movie it was made for a book and you can only do so much with action sequences in a book so, you know, it's interesting how, like, how that connects with the audience and what doesn't. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, because, I mean, for you as as somebody just looking at it from a film perspective, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I think it's safe to assume that the stuff that you saw, you ended up enjoying, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And I feel like what they were able to accomplish, at least with the first and the third movies, was taking enough elements from the books to make it feel like it's being true to the source material without deviating so much that it feels just over the top and egregious. After going back and reading those last five chapters, yes, it's it's a lot to pull from five chapters and turn it into a whole movie. I get that. But taking those five chapters into account, all the things that they did, it was actually fairly realistic it was it was it was fairly true to to what i read in in the sequence and i was rather pleased by that i was rather impressed by that so i mean i got to enjoy it both as a movie and as a book lover and i feel like there are certain elements from at least one of these movies that are able to accomplish that as well and that's part of what is unifying the book lovers and the movie lovers is just Peter Jackson's ability to take elements from those stories and blend them into cinematic beauty. 
Oh yeah, totally. Peter Jackson is, I mean, regardless of your criticisms of this movies or any of his films, he is phenomenal filmmaker and just the way he can translate stuff and create things and make truly epic films. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And before we leave this uh, this mountaintop and before we uh, start making our way back to Bag End, I have to give some special recognition to uh, to King Thranduil's fighting style uh, just for our patron, Katie Horn, because I think she's secretly in love with Lee Pace. <laughs> well, who isn't? But, I mean, honestly, I've got a bit of a man crush on him. Like, he's he's a fantastic actor, for one, and he plays this role so incredibly well. And he's got a uh, an elk that he rides on in battle. And probably my second favorite sequence in the movie. I did love the sequence with Legolas, but that's probably like my third favorite sequence, honestly. My second favorite after the elves jumping over the company of dwarves in battle would be his elk lifting five or six orcs into his antlers and then Thranduil cutting all of their heads off while they're stuck to his antlers. I love that. That's great. Oh my gosh. I've never seen anything like that. And again, a testament to the fighting style and the storytelling, the choreography, the way that they were able to blend all of these things together so, so well. I mean, you've got all these different fights happening on all these different fronts and each one was still entertaining. Was it drawn out? Yes. Was that the point? Also, yes. Mm -hmm. So, all in all, I very, very much enjoyed the way that it all turned out. I enjoyed the resolution. And I enjoyed... I mean, I won't say that I enjoyed saying goodbye to certain characters, but I felt like this movie really, really explored the idea of character development. You get to see where they've come from from movie one and how they compare to their character in movie three, willing to sacrifice themselves for love and for their kin, willing to do whatever it takes to protect the valley, protect Erebor, willing to fight off dragons to save your town and save your people. Like, this whole movie is centered around not staying the same. Other than maybe Gandalf... Nobody in this movie is exactly the same as they were when the movie started. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a testament to some great storytelling, great writing, great acting. There's there's a lot of subtleties included in this movie that you really, really have to look for it sometimes. But when you do, it turns out to be a very pleasant experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's great to see how they evolve. I love Bilbo's journey, mm-hmm. but I love the 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 dwarves' journey too. Who would you say is your favorite character from this movie, and then maybe from the trilogy as a whole? I feel like it's a cop out to say Bilbo, but honestly, Bilbo from from both from both angles. I love his journey. I love his role in this. I love his I love his arc, and you know his his characterization and how he evolves but also you know how he affects and does things and surprises people along this journey and you know 
you know, Pete, they're, they kind of underestimate him. They still underestimate him, even after they kind of tr- accept him and trust him. They still don't mm-hmm. expect him to do what he does. Yeah, and I, I think that's a, I think that's a testament to him more than, more than even to the, to the way that the dwarves perceive him. You, you really don't know what to expect from a hobbit, from a halfling, from somebody that's you know, hundreds of miles away from the Shire, but every time he's needed, he turns up mm-hmm. yeah. and he shows up and he shows out. And, uh, I think you definitely get a sense of where Frodo gets his sense of adventure from oh, totally. and his sense of purpose. Like it totally runs in the family. hundred <laughs> percent. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, so what's interesting is, after after Thorin passes, which we'll we'll come back around to that in a second, because that's a that's a pretty big pretty big important sequence. Um, after he passes, Dane decides that he, uh, well, okay, so by right of succession, Feely and Kili and Thorin are all dead. Dane is Thorin's cousin, so he's the next in line to assume control of Erebor. Mm-hmm. And he recognizes that the contract is now old and with some of them dead, it's rather expired, but he still wants to reward Bilbo. And so he ends up giving him one chest of gold and one chest of silver. And he makes it back to Hobbiton with that money. Just in time, this is, is, this is in the book, this is not a creative liberty, just in time to see his own funeral auction. <laughs> I know. I love that. And and his stuff is being auctioned off because they presumed he was dead. If he's been gone for this long, he's not coming back. Am I right? I mean, you can imagine how long he has been gone. Like it's been at least a year, probably closer to two. Yeah, he's like how many? How many? You know, fifteen months or something like that. Like something ridiculous amount of time. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, yeah, you, you thought he went off to fight a dragon and he hasn't come back. Like, kind of makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's safe to assume that if you've been gone for that long, you've either found yourself a new home or you're just not coming back. So, yeah, they they were auctioning off his stuff. And in the movie, it shows that he's got the contract that, you know, got his signature on it, proof of identification. They didn't exactly have a DMV, so you don't have a driver's <laughs> license to prove who you are or anything like that. Um, but what ends up happening is he ends up having to use some of the fortune that he brought home in order to buy back his own stuff. Oh, okay. And that's why by the time you get to the Fellowship of the Ring, he talks about how he's got one small chest hardly overflowing. Or maybe it was in this movie. Maybe it was in Unexpected Journey he was talking about that. Uh, But uh, either way, he only ends up with one small chest of treasure because he ends up having to use a bulk of his wealth in order to get back all of the stuff that was auctioned off. Okay, yeah. So kind of kind of crazy, but it also explains like a lot of his isolation and why he's so grumpy in the fellowship. He's like, go away. We don't want visitors or cousins or distant relations. The reason he's so solitary, according to the book, is his neighbors and, and even a lot of relatives were very skeptical that 
it was actually Bilbo who had returned. Oh my gosh. They thought that it was potentially some imposter. And the Thackfield Bagginses were especially mad because they wanted to live in his hobbit hole. <laughs> they wanted his stuff. They were jealous. They they wanted to buy his stuff as much lock, stock, and barrel as they could, and then they wanted to buy his property and live in his hobbit hole. And so they were all very skeptical about whether it was actually him, and so they kept away from him. And the only reason that they came to his party in the Fellowship of the Ring was because he was hosting a spectacle. And hobbits love spectacle. Yeah. But for the most part, over the course of the next 60 years... He's pretty much in isolation and really only the Took side of the family, which is what uh, Pippin belongs to. Pippin is a Took, and I'm pretty sure Frodo is like his cousin or something like that. Okay. So the Took side of the family is really the only side of the family that still stays in touch with Bilbo for the next 60 years. And they're the ones who set out on the adventure in the Fellowship of the Ring. Ah, makes sense. So, a little bit of Hobbiton history for you to close out the adventure through Middle-earth. Not going to lie, I love the Shire music. I could listen to Howard Shore's Hobbit music nonstop. It is great. Like, just play that wherever I'm going, whatever I'm doing. Just have that playing in the background. Let that be my theme music. The thing that keeps me happy and calm and serene is... Thoughts of the Shire. Yeah. But we've uh, we've got to have some thoughts on the loss of uh, Sir Oakenshield as well. Yeah, we do. Because that that scene was was intense and it was amazing, but it was also very sad to see. Because uh, we've been following him for three movies, man. And to see Azog finally get... Uh, one of the last laughs. Obviously, Thorin ended up killing him as well, but at great price. Um, it's not often when you see the hero character defeat the villain, but it ends up costing him his life in the process. Mm-hmm. Just not something that you see in movies these days. Yeah, and it's it's a pretty intense scene, and it's also followed up by a very, very emotional goodbye for that character mm-hmm a goodbye with uh with mr baggins no less yeah and it's crazy crazy sad and i believe we have the scene to actually listen to tonight do we not we do we have we have the audio rendition and then i'm gonna try and find the uh the text version and do a little comparison contrast if that's okay with you that is perfectly fine so uh, we'll let them do the talking first, and then uh, we'll follow it up and see how closely they relate to one another. But this is Mr. Baggins and the King Under the Mountain in his final moments. Bilbo and Thorin as they bid each other farewell. <laughs> Bilbo, no, don't move. Don't move. Lie still. Oh. I'm glad you're here. I wish to part from you in French. No. You are not going anywhere, Thorin. You're going to live. I will take back my word and my deed to the gate. You did what only a true friend would do. Forgive me. I was too blind to see it. 
I am so sorry that I have led you into such peril. <coughs> oh, I'm, I'm glad to have shared in your perils, Thorin. Each and every one of them. And it's far more than any Baggins deserves. Farewell, Master Burglar. Go back to your books. So that line that he says about the world being a better place, um, it's actually, it's actually very, uh, very similar to the stuff that you actually get in, in the book. Mm. Um, I'm trying to, to make sure I've got the right, the right sequence because it's a very, it's a very moving piece. Um. I mean, if the, mo- Gan- if, the mo- Gandalf- if the movie itself is moving, then I can only imagine why the book plays. Well, okay, so their encounter happens at the top of the waterfall, and in this one, Thorin is back at camp. So it's it's a little bit different, okay. and I kind of like the idea of saying goodbye to him on the battlefield because that's kind of where he belongs. You know, right? Doesn't he doesn't necessarily belong in a in a tent, you know, gasping for his last breath, which is kind of what is implied here, but but not quite. So Gandalf finds Bilbo after he awakened from his unconsciousness, and he says, Hail Thorin, he said as he entered. I have brought him. There indeed lay Thorin Oakenshield, wounded with many wounds, and his rent armor and notched axe were cast upon the floor. He looked up as Bilbo came beside him. Farewell, good thief, he said. I go now to the halls of waiting to sit beside my fathers until the world is renewed. Since I leave now all gold and silver and go where it is of little worth, I wish to part in friendship from you, and I would take back my words and deeds at the gate. Bilbo knelt down on one knee filled with sorrow. Farewell, king under the mountain, he said. This is a bitter adventure if it must end so and not a mountain of gold can amend it. Yet I am glad that I have shared in your perils. That has been more than any Baggins deserves. No, said Thorin. There is more in you of good than you know, child of the kindly West. Some courage and some wisdom blended in measure. If more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold... It would be a merrier world. But, sad or merry, I must leave it now. Farewell. Man. Tolkien, one of the best fantasy writers, probably just one of the best writers, period. Man. Good stuff. I teared up a little bit. I teared up a little bit just thinking about it. Good stuff. Man. Although the style is a little bit different, it's a little hard for me to read out loud sometimes, but it's a good book. And like I said, it's only like 19 chapters. My leatherback version, it's only, you know, 270-something, not even that. 
I think it's 200. What did I say? The return journey, the last stage. Do, 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 276 pages for my little leather bound version. Wow. So, I mean, I read those last five chapters in under two hours today. Wow. It's a, it's a pretty easy read, but it's a pretty great adventure and totally worth the read. So if anything, I hope that this has inspired you all to go back and, and read it again or read it for the first time and maybe inspired you to go back and watch these adventures through Middle Earth because I know I enjoyed this trip through. And uh, Ben, I feel like you enjoyed it as well. So maybe it's time for our planet score, huh? Yeah, I suppose it is. And... <sighs> This is hard because especially when you get down to the, to the last part of the trilogy, like I was, you know, starting with the first two films, I was ignorant of what all, what I thought of all these films. So I'm like, mm-hmm. I can judge them freely. And then you get to the last one, I'm like, am I judging this correctly? <laughs> Do I give this I give <laughs> this one a good score? Do I really like feel that way against the other ones? And it's really complicated, but I'm going to try to be as fair as possible and say that I'm going to give this one an 8 out of 10, a solid 8 out of 10. I really enjoyed this one. I think as far as ranking goes, I think it ranks above Unexpected Journey, but below Desolation of Smaug. I'm sticking with that. And I I think it was great. I think maybe the action, I mean, it is called Battle of Five Armies, and most of the movie is a battle of five armies. I mean, you get what you, you get what you have to pay for. So like literally. So like you can't really complain, but at the same time, I mean, the action I feel like even as someone who loves action, loves good action sequences, it does drag on a bit, especially towards the end, you really start to like I think for good action sequences how they're done, I think you have to have like it's you go through the processes and then it's over, and you have a resolution. I think when it goes on too long, it can get boring. I think a few sequences in this movie probably are guilty of that, even though I did enjoy them. I think overall, it does drag on a bit, but at the same time, like I said, I enjoyed it. It was good, and there is some really good surprises, some really poignant deaths, some really sad moments, and also some some great epic moments too. So I enjoyed this one. I think it's a fair score, man. Um, and and considering the position and rankings that you've given to all the other stuff, it fits right in there as far as planet scores are concerned. We alternated 9s and 7.5s over the previous movies. Oh. I gave Unexpected Journey a 9. You gave it a 7.5. Uh, you gave Desolation of Smaug a 9. I gave it a 7.5. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, it was kind of interesting watching the, the contrast between there, but I think you and I are actually on fairly similar pages as far as our perception of this third and final installment. Uh, it's a lot of that get what you paid for fighting experience, but I also appreciated how true to the source material it was. Um, I appreciated the, the depth of character development that they gave the choreography, uh, certain fight sequences that were different from anything else that we'd seen, introduction to new characters, the resolution to old characters like Smaug and the Master. Uh, overall, it was a very good movie. Um, I still think that I enjoy uh, Unexpected Journey the most, but I, I did really enjoy Battle of the Five Armies. Uh, some of the deviations, though, are not very forgivable to me. 
Uh, I'm not super crazy about all of the creative liberties that they took involving the necromancer. I'm not super excited about, you know, some of the, the character uh, twists that they made, especially with uh, Keely and Toriel. Like, it, it, some of it just didn't feel quite necessary for the sake of the story. So, I, I, I've been teetering back and forth between, uh, between an 8 and an 8.5. And the, the one thing that is kind of the deciding factor is one thing that I have not brought up yet, but I feel the need to. As Legolas is getting ready to leave, he says he cannot return to Mirkwood. So his father sends him to go look for a young ranger. He tells him to go into he tells him to go into these woods and look for a young ranger who goes by the name of Strider. Uh-huh. And his real name is one that he needs to find out for himself. And he's trying to be all mysterious, but everybody knows the name Strider, everybody knows that it's Aragorn, but if you've been following the chronology from The Unexpected Journey, you know that these adventures take place 60 years before the Fellowship of the Ring. So, implying that it takes Legolas at least 60 years to find Aragorn. It implies that it takes him a couple of decades to find him, and then he has to befriend him. And then it also implies that a young ranger would probably be around the age of 20 or so, which means 20 plus the 60 going up to Fellowship of the Ring would imply that Aragorn is at least 80 years old at the time of the Fellowship of the Ring. And, and in this universe, humans age relatively normal, do they not? Fairly normal, I believe. Unless Aragorn uh, is not human, or unless he's some kind of special human. <laughs> uh, man. Okay, so I'm trying to to look it up online. Just a quick Google search. Um, it actually says that. Okay, this is just a Google search, mind you. But says Aragorn was 87 at the time of the Fellowship of the Ring. Oh, wow. I guess that means that their lifespan is somewhere around 300 or so. Because crazy. Uh, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I guess, really... I guess that interfaces with like our general folklore and our general like. Like, like realistically speaking, I think our own like in real life life expectancies used to be like really long, and then they got really short, and then now we're heading back in that direction again. I think. Yeah, so maybe okay. maybe that's trying to tie in with the idea that like in ancient times people could live you know hundreds of years old. I don't know. I mean, according to the wiki page, it says that he lived to be two hundred and ten. Also, this is fantasy, so humans yeah, humans I mean, could live that long. You know, you could just say I that. I mean, apparently. But Viggo Mortensen doesn't look a day over 40 in the movies. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
like I, I just have a hard time reconciling that. And maybe I just need to go back and read the books again to try and like get a better understanding of the lore and of Aragorn and that kind of thing. But the idea that he's looking for a young ranger who's potentially in the 20 to 25 region. And then, you know, by the time the fellowship comes around, he's 87. I just, ugh. I don't know. That kind of rubs me the wrong way. It is weird. But and that's not, it was that in the original book or no? I don't know. That's the thing is I've read the Hobbit several times through, but I haven't made it all the way through all of Lord of the Rings just because of timing. Hmm. You know, I can, I can read the Hobbit, like I said, in maybe a week and just get it knocked out. You know, right. Lord of the Rings is a lot more immersive, a lot bigger, a lot more in depth, uh, a lot more chapters. So I just haven't been able to tackle it the way that I want to. And I'll, I'll be the first one to admit that. I, I know a lot more about the Hobbit lore than I do about the Lord of the Rings lore just because the Hobbit is an easier read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so with that, now with this Wikipedia knowledge that Aragorn is apparently 87, um, I'm going to go ahead and go with my 8.5. Because if that's true, then I guess that fault is a little bit more forgivable. But there are still deviations that I have qualms with and certain fight sequences going longer than I felt like they needed to, that sort of thing. But overall, I liked it more than Desolation of Smaug, but not as much as Unexpected Journey. Fair enough. I went on a really long tangent just to give my planet score. I bet a lot of the listeners were sitting there going, get on with it! What is it? What is it? I'm on the edge of my seat Tell here, man. Me. We're taking bets. I'm a, we're we're taking shots for every minute you go on a tangent. It's a drinking game, and I'm getting alcohol poisoning over here. It's been a night of tangents. Uh, well, it's been a fun night, that's for it sure. It has been. But it's not over yet. And before we close out the night, just want to give a quick shout-out to our patrons who helped make this program possible. The likes of Joey Mays, Katie Horn, Jake Damon, Rachel Perry, Dan Grievous, and Parker Ott. You guys keep the lights on. You guys make sure that our subscription to Podbean stays up and running so that we can produce quality content for you guys on a regular basis. And you're helping provide things like movie tickets and theme music and our subscription to Public, which is where we can get all of our awesome IPC swag from. Uh, if you want to become a patron and have some exclusive benefits, then just go to patron.podbean.com forward slash IPC podcast. And if you're interested in the swag that I mentioned, you can check out our merchandise on TeePublic at TeePublic.com, T as in t-shirt, T-E-E public.com slash user slash IPC podcast. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm done giving out all the plugs for now. But we do have another sequence that we need to talk about before we call it a night. And this one should be interesting. At least I hope it is. We'll see. But, we shall uh, see. We, we shall see, and we'll see in just a second. But before that, I just want to let you know that it's time to get out your hashtags. And I usually, at this point, say if you're listening live, then put it in the chat. But guess what? This was pre-recorded. Ouch. Ooh. It's funny. It's funny. Last week, I think, someone was in the chat going, this is pre-recorded, it's not live. I was like, people like, no, no, we're actually live this time. <laughs> like, no, 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 you don't understand. Now, they're, they're gun-shy now, but no, no, this one is, is not live. Sorry, guys. Yeah, well, schedules, what are you going to do, yeah. you know? Hey, at it least you're getting is. a show this week. Some weeks, you never know what's going to happen. 
Right. Or we have to, like, do, like, an impromptu thing where we ask somebody to get on and talk about Frasier for 40 minutes. <laughs> it's happened. It's happened, guys. It, it, there, There is something in our records. We have proof that that actually happened. And it actually inspired me to go back and watch the show. And now I love it. I'm a Frasier fan. So go listen nice. to that episode. And if you're not convinced, then come back and maybe we'll do our own Frasier episode sometime. I don't know. Yeah. But all that to say, even though it's not live, it is time for that famous hashtag that we use. And I'm pretty sure we're the only podcast in existence to use this hashtag. So get it out and start putting it on social media. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, and everything else in between. Because it is time, one more time, for hashtag BBQ Watch. Barbecue. Barbecue. Barbecue! 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 Okay, so we've done barbecue watches before where it has to do with the scenery. One time when we went to uh, to California and we talked about Rogue One with our friends from the SWU, mm-hmm. we uh, we talked about which location from Rogue One would be the best one to host a barbecue from. Mm-hmm. We all decided on Scarif. Uh, I think at one point we talked about having a barbecue on the beach and uh, what that would look like, maybe building a fire pit and cooking the meat over an open flame, uh, that sort of thing. This one is kind of the opposite of that. That scene, that scenery that we have up on the mountaintop that's kind of, you know, different keeps in ruins and a frozen waterfall. It's very cold. There's a lot of snow falling. It's very icy in nature. I can't help but wonder how welcome a fire would be in that situation. It would be. And how even more welcome would it be to catch drift of meat being slowly cooked over that fire in the frozen tundra? That would be so satisfying because it really you have this very – I mean, let's face it. It's, it's not a very welcoming environment. You know, cold. Right. Cold, I'll be honest, cold sucks. All right. I don't like heat. Dude, I am in layers right now, and it's Texas in October for crying out loud. What is wrong? <laughs> I wish I – to be honest, even as much as I hate cold, I wish I was in layers right now. But no, it's like 90 degrees here, even though it's October. Whatever. Oh, that's weird, man. That's so weird. Why does Mississippi have warmer weather than Texas right now? It just – Right? It just It's just because, just because, you know. It's the, it's right the, now. It's the uh, – it's the beauties of uh, living in the subtropics. You know how it is. Right now, it is 50, and that's the warmest it's been all day. It was mostly in the 40s and rainy Ooh, all day. Oh, that's that's that sucks. That and I sucks. had to go to and I had to go to class in that, so it was like cold and wet and dark and damp and nope. cloudy and nope. all that stuff. Nope. It was wonderful. So, see, I'm never yes, happy. I don't want the cold or the hot. So I'm not happy at all, ever. So you want San Diego? Basically, yes. Dude, I freaking love San Diego. When we went on vacation, that was one of my favorite trips I've ever taken because the weather was pitch perfect the whole time we were there. It never got below, like, 65 and never got above, 
maybe 80. Damn Californians don't know what they got. I'm telling you, dude, it was gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. And not nearly as busy as L.A. I know it probably gets busy during Comic-Con, but honestly, it was very casual. And so you get the California weather and the California beaches without the hustle and bustle that you get from from California, from L.A. and Orange County and all that sort of stuff. It was a very nice compromise. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed my time in San Diego and am looking forward to when I get to go back. Totally. All that to say, barbecue on the frozen tundra. <laughs> Um, I think I would prefer a barbecue in San Diego, but um, the idea of having a warm fire for everybody to kind of come around, the idea of having like food to share and stories to tell and songs to sing and blankets and being huddled up, you know, around the fire. Oh, yeah. It just sounds like a really nice evening, a nice way to spend time together, to share food together. And... You know, to share warmth together. If you're, you know, up next to your something, something, someone, you know, that kind of weather is a, it's pretty good cuddle weather. I'll put wow, it that way. Wow, wow. Okay, that's a little too far now. I'm a little. Uncomfortable. Oh, I'm going Thanks. too far. Oh, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. I'm the one that usually takes it too far. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm the I'm the problem all of a sudden. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm getting a little delirious. Oh, Before that happens, late, reminder, y'all. It's you can late. go. F- <laughs> yeah, it really is. Before it gets too late, let me remind you to go find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at IPC Podcast. You can find recent episodes on iTunes, Google Play, and IPCPodcast.podbean.com, as well as stories and recaps on our uh, the website of our partners at the Star Wars Underworld. Just go find StarWarsUnderworld.com. You can also use that to find news, rumors, release dates, and other information from the galaxy far, far away. Uh, Ben, where can people find you on the interwebs if they want to keep up with you throughout the course of the They can find me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, all at Ben Hart with no E. That's literally how it sounds and how it's spelled heart with no e um and uh yeah and then you can of course check out everything else pretty much that's what i do on the internet i do ipc i do sw and i do a lot of stuff at sw including social media so uh check out at sw at the sw i should say i should know it by now i do the fr- yeah you really should it really is shameful that I, I don't know it but i do um at the sw for all your star wars needs well, I don't know about you, but I need a good night's sleep. Me too. Me too. Totally. <laughs> so I do believe that it is time to, quote unquote, put this one to bed. I'm going to call it. Episode 211 is now officially in the books. For Ben Hart, I'm Zach Arnold. Thank you for tuning in and sticking with us as long as you have. We hope that you'll tune in next week. Uh, We've got a pretty awesome episode lined up for you, but I'm not going to tell you what it is because I don't remember what it is, and I'm going to keep you in suspense. So, ha. But it's going to be great. It's going to be fun. It's going to be awesome, as always. And we're looking forward to that awesome time with you. But until that awesome time arrives, we just want to leave you with this thought. Fear is a great motivator. And we hope that you're motivated to tune in next week on IPC. But until then, good night, everyone.
I saw the light fade from the sky. On the wind, I heard a sigh. As the snowflakes cover my fallen brothers, I will say this last goodbye. Night is now falling, so ends this day. The road is now calling, and I must away over hill and under tree, through lands where never light is shone. By silver streams that run down to the sea, under cloud, beneath the stars, over snow on winter's morn, I turn at last to paths that lead home. We came all this way, but now comes the day to bid you farewell. Many places I have been, many sorrows I have seen, but I don't regret, nor will I forget. All who took that road with me. Night is now for me. So ends this day. The road is now calling, and I must away over hill and under tree. Through lands where never light is shone, by silver streams that run down to the sea, to these memories I will hold with your blessing. I will go to turn and last to pass. This way, but now comes the day to bid you farewell. I bid you all a very fond farewell.